or maybe three, we'll see, of awesome podcasting greatness. This week, I am welcoming back John Atack, my special guest and friend from across the pond. Hey, John. Hey, good to see you again, Chris. Good to see you and have you back. And what we are doing this week is, of course, continuing with John's story of uh, basically his life story as a Scientologist versus Scientology, coming out of Scientology, Last podcast, we covered his coming in and getting out of Scientology as far as the label Scientologist, and now we're going to start talking about the after-Scientology world. And the there's, aftermath. <laughs> that's right, the aftermath, that's right. And there's a lot here. We're probably not going to get this done today. Neither one of us are anticipating that we will. Uh, it's There's a lot to tell. And of course, as you guys uh, know, John and I love to talk. And we, and we just have so many things that we get into with this stuff. So we'll see where this is going to go off to. But uh, always interesting, always informative, and of course, always entertaining, which is why I love having John on as a guest. So, John, let's go ahead and pick up where we left off, huh? Yeah, it was somewhere in uh, October 1983 or something. <clears throat> That's right. That's right. Um, and you had left under what circumstances, would you say? Well, I, I I just had found out, you know, that there were there was a congruence of events. One of my closest friends ended up being on a list of suppressive people, and um, you know, when I went, I, I was summoned to Saint Hill to be told, uh, for, the firstly, that um, there was a rumor that he was going to be declared, and the ethics officer at Saint Hill. Wanted, wanted to enlist my aid in making sure this didn't happen. And then a week later, I was called in by the same guy and he said, he, he's, he's a su suppressive, he's been declared. And I said, well, what are we gonna do about it? And he said, uh, oh, they can be so devious, these people. Now he'd known this guy for 15 years. Wow. If I remember rightly. He'd known it's, him for it is time. frightening. It, one of the things that's truly frightening about these groups, Scientology and other groups, when we talk about these destructive cults, or high control groups, the th one of the most terrifying aspects of them is this, what you just said, that that on on the slightest bit of evidence, on the on the order from above, on, on the mere word from the group, from the group leadership, people will abandon family, friends, relationships that they've had for, yeah, 10, 15, 20 years, just overnight. It is frightening that that, that is, that that kind of, um, that bonds can be broken that easily because of this authoritarian control, you know. I mean, the, the, the most remarkable example I've seen of it, that there's a great and very funny movie called The Death of Stalin by Armando Iannucci. And in it, Michael Palin of Monty Python and Travel fame uh, plays uh, Molotov, after whom a cocktail that's not a drink was named. And... He is basically told, Stalin has died, and he's told that his wife, Molotov's wife, is on the next execution list. And so he says, well, there must be a reason for it. You know, Comrade Stalin would not just have put her on the list. And it's this astonishing thought that just because Comrade Stalin 
decided that this was a bad, they're a bad person. And the, the Bolsheviks, if they were indeed still Bolsheviks at this point, the Stalinists, are about the worst example of a cult group and a dangerous cult group there is. But this way that your loyalty to the truth becomes your loyalty to an individual who gives you orders and tells you what to do, which is, is the worst possible aspect of human behavior. I, I you know, sat in that conversation trying to argue with this guy and, and sort of said, well, look, by Scientology policy, he should have had, he should have been presented with charges in a bill of particulars. He should have had a court of ethics or a committee of evidence. There should have been findings and recommendations and they should be authorized at that time by the international justice chief. Where's the paperwork? And he's like, oh no, his name's on a list of 600 people. And- Oh, wow. He had gotten, he, there was a list that had been sent down that had 600 people's name on it. Just these guys are all suppressives. Boom. Yes. That's it. Yeah. Damn. I don't, I, did we, did, I don't remember mentioning that before. So no. that's, that is a tremendous piece of information. I mean, just at once. We talk, well, let's carry on with this because we're going to get into the mission holders and all the rest. So there's, I mean, this this is the beginning of, I'll just describe this as Scientology. This was the closest Scientology ever came, I think, this time period, to Scientology truly imploding and destroying itself. Um, I mean, the numbers were tremendous. And and so let's, let's go ahead and get into this. I, I think that it'd be fair to say that more than half of the membership left between 1982 and 1984. Yep. Um, many, most of those people just walked away forever, um, and they they were gone. Some yeah, that us, was that was here in America as well as in the UK. I think it was an international shakedown or something. It was everywhere. It was yeah. everywhere it, because David Mayo had been built up for so long as as the successor to Ron Hubbard, and then suddenly we've got Ron Hubbard calling him the bird dog in the control room. In the famous story of a squirrel. Um, I mean, I, I left, you know, I spent six months going through the lines, you know, up lines to, to have, you know, I ended up writing, uh, you know, saying, you know, I know I'm not going to disconnect from anybody because this had just come back in. Um, September 83 was, it was really reinforced. Um, but you know, I'm being asked to not talk to somebody and it's like, no, I, I decide that. Nobody decides who I do and don't talk to. And I'm not frightened of any suppressive. You know, somebody's suppressive. They're not going to have some weird, spooky effect on me. I will talk with them and I'll see what I have to say. And um, that was not really an acceptable point of view. But I, so I, I wrote through, you know, I went to the International Justice Chief and got nothing. So eventually I wrote this letter because you had the standing order number one line, which was you can always write to Ron, and um, which was bogus from the start. There's a policy letter in the mid-60s when it was started that says he, he will receive the letters, but he won't reply to them. You know, They go to where he is. Hannah Whitfield, bless her, at um, the Toronto thing in 2015, talked about you know, she was the Commodore's staff one, so she was in charge of this thing. She talked about getting a friend to help her throw the boxes of letters overboard so they wouldn't have to do anything with them. So I wrote a letter and it said, Dear Ron, I know that you don't get these letters. <laughs> However, this is the highest point 
I can get to and um, you know this has happened to my friend and and it's wrong there sh should be a proper proceeding and the response was of course I answer my letters your letter is on my desk and that that, and that was that it was, that was it, that, it was, that like, was it that was the well you got an answer yeah you got an answer and, um, <laughs> oh, it was a pretty shitty answer but it was an answer and at that point, I, I just ah. went, no. And I questioned it all um, within a few weeks, found myself um, at the centre of the UK independence because I was told that, that I'd been um, assigned the position of chairman of the OT Committee UK. The, uh, I had no idea what an OT committee was, um, you know, operating Thetans, upper-level Scientologists. But, but I was, you know, okay, I'm the chairman of the OT Committee UK. I then found out that I answered to, or was meant to, I, I never really did, I was meant to answer to Captain Bill Roberts, uh, who was the chairman of the OT Committee. And, and just as a you know, point here, I have made this point elsewhere, but it's funny, so I'm going to make it again. But <laughs> Captain Bill when, was not declared suppressive by Ron Hubbard, and nobody could declare him suppressive because he had, was Karkhan, which is a specific status apparently given by Genghis Khan to people who'd murdered enough people for him that nobody was allowed to say anything nasty about them. But he was also, by title, the second deputy commodore. Now, the hierarchy of Scientology ran the commodore, not a member of the soul group. Um, then the deputy commodore, Mary Sue Hubbard, then the second deputy commodore. By this time, Mary Sue Hubbard had been dismissed. So technically, when he was thrown out, and it probably was on Hubbard's order, but Hubbard wasn't signing any orders anymore in case the FBI found out about it, because he wasn't meant, or the IRS, he wasn't meant to be running anything. So technically, Captain Bill was the head of Scientology once Hubbard was gone. I'm the only person who was appointed by Bill so I'm really, de facto, the head of Scientology, and I want the money. And if David Miscavige <laughs> would just give me half of the money, I'll go away and not cause him any more trouble. There we go. There we go. That's the spirit. Special offer. Well, but, now you sent me the, 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 that bulletin that Captain Bill had written, which was unique. In everything I've ever read in Scientology, that document was unique. That came out around this time, is that is that right? It, we, we might be slightly at cross purposes. I, I sent you okay. the original Founders Bulletin. Yes, was that Captain yeah. Bill? No. That, oh, that, that was, was not, okay. Okay, I missed one in a one in a long line of people who have claimed to be L. Ron Hubbard. Okay, okay. I'm currently getting email from somebody who's L. Ron Hubbard who wants to put me right. Right, um, yeah, because that was an interesting read to say the least. Yeah, that, and and, you know, th there's a whole story around that that, that yeah. basically came out in 1982. It calls itself the original Founders Bulletin, um, Scientology, the ultimate implant. Now, that part of it, I think uh, there may be implants after Scientology, so it may not be ultimate. But the perception that Scientology is, in fact, an implant within Hubbard's terms, that's fairly deep. Uh, but this, the bulletin, as you saw, basically, this guy says he was... He took over Hubbard's body after it had been destroyed during World War II, probably by the conjunctivitis or the fall down the ladder or the ulcers from the 
um, but he took it over when it was couldn't survive, possibly survive. The ulcer was so bad, um, and then started developing the technology, and then somebody pushed him out, and the guy who pushed him out is is absolutely evil and terrible. And they, uh, we've been restoring the, we've I've got the tape of the Mission Holders Conference in 1982. I'm led to believe I have the only copy of it anywhere in the known universe. And before anybody gets too worried, there are safe copies of it elsewhere. But we're working on a sound restoration of it at the moment. And we have the point where this bulletin is discussed. It didn't get into the transcripts of the conference, but somebody gets very upset. I'm not quite sure who the speaker is. I was led to believe it was David Miscavige, but I, I'm, I need somebody, you know, to check that for me because it doesn't sound like Miscavige to me. He he has a fairly Philadelphia kind of accent. Um, well, that is where Miscavige is from. Yeah, and and it sounds like friends I have from, you know, and if you listen to W. C. Fields, he sounds just like David Miscavige. No, sorry, he came from Philadelphia. <laughs> sorry. Okay. So put that in there. Fair enough. Fair enough. So that's interesting, though, because it was a confusing time. There were a number of people popping up, well, you know, and saying, "Hey, I'm the one in charge, or I got the master story, or I know what the deal is." Let, let's make a digression because the first <laughs> yeah. thing that I wanted to find out after I'd left was what had happened. So I created a newsletter called Reconnection because that was my attitude. And in the second issue, I, there was a piece that I called, so what really happened? In which I pieced together as best I could the story. Now, in the years that followed, I came to interview the, the key players. And what seems to have happened is quite simple. The Guardian's office have been caught. 11 of them are sent to prison. Hubbard is terrified. He's got more than 300 writs outstanding against him. He's got to be in hiding. So he's hiding. Um, at Creston, uh, near San Luis Obispo. And Pat Broker is crawling around in the night meeting David Miscavige and they're swapping little messages like, you know, good little pretend spies or, or whatever they thought they were doing. And according to Jesse Prince, of course, stealing money from Ron Hubbard's bank account so he can go whoring and gambling in Las Vegas. I don't think David Miscavige would do anything like that. He is a thoroughly ethical being, I'm sure. <laughs> sarcasm, sarcasm, sarcasm. Sarcasm <laughs> bordering on irony, you know, I mean, yeah. possibly, but who knows? Yeah. It's hard to tell with me. Um, but yeah, and there were a couple of years where Hubbard was also, let's remember, uh, just driving around the Pacific Northwest or the Midwest in a Bluebird mobile home, too. Before okay. he settled in Creston, California, so there was yeah. a there was a crazy period in the early to mid '80s where Hubbard was just kind of all over the place. So it 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 start, things start going bad in the seven, '70s as yep. soon as the FBI raids happen. You know there has to be more security, and ultimately he gets a little bit paranoid. And as, as you say, that there's a period of moving around, and then he settles in Creston, deciding deciding that's safe, and then dementia kind of takes over. But so there's a period, 81, the Guardian's office has fallen. And in 82, what happened in the secretly and in the background is that several mission holders led by a man called Alan Walter, who is was the fattest person I've ever met when I interviewed him. He was huge. Wow. You know, he, he had what's 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 called a lot of mass, you know, a lot of havingness. And uh, he offered me a job. It was funny because 
I didn't believe in any of this by this time. And there's this guy going, you could come and work for me. You know, this would be great. I'll give you a load of money. You know, Alan was just this larger than life character. And he had basically gone and approached, he was a mission holder, he'd made a lot of money. He'd gone, he was pulling together a conspiracy to take over Scientology because he believed that Hubbard was gone. This, and he wanted, what he wanted to introduce was a thing called the game. I, I have the documents on it somewhere. And the idea was that Scientology would stop wasting its time on poor people of any kind, other than to bring in some sealed slaves and would pitch higher and higher prices, getting into the elite of society, a bit like the International Christian League, the family. And he had been um, down to Florida to flag. He'd had meetings with Bill Franks, who was the executive director international. He'd had meetings with various other mission holders. And then they had this meeting where Guardian's office people um, admitted that not only had they been spying on the US government, the French government, the Canadian government, the British government, what have you, they'd also been spying on the mission holders. And they probably didn't know that it was Ron Hubbard who'd ordered them to do this because the whole construction of Scientology is about you know, flag reps reporting on L. Ron Hubbard communicators, reporting on deputy guardians. You've got all of these mechanisms, just as the Nazis did, where you have different departments doing the same thing and fighting with each other over it. So everything remains in turmoil, remarkably inefficient, but nobody gets to steal the money, which is right. the important thing, you know. That's um, a very good point and a very good way of looking at the sort of apparatus or structure of Scientology through the 70s was it was putting together, you know, from one point of view, from the management point of view, as a manager later on in the down the line, trying to reconstruct this time period from the internal documents of the sea organization you don't get any of this picture it's a very confused no. picture i studied piles of issues when i was a sea org member trying to decipher and take apart what happened in the 60s and 70s from an internal point of view as a manager because we were constantly being told that you know, we don't understand our own system, we're not operating standardly, we need to be running these orgs standardly. So I was trying to dissect what was standard management, what was Hubbard trying to do? And I can tell you from, from somebody who really was investigating and looking into this in a, in, a, in a believer sense, I wasn't trying to take it apart from a, you know, let's, let's look at how this is all nefarious. But I'll just say that even internally, you can't sort all of this out with the internal documents it's it's a mess of a situation and and it's and as you just mentioned i i felt i should say this because because uh, that's on purpose and i didn't realize as an internal struggling staff member decades after the fact of all of this crap going down that it was obfuscated on purpose and that these structures were you know, that you do have two places doing the same thing at the same time and either and neither one actually they know about each other and they're fighting each other, but they don't realize they're actually they're doing the same thing, yeah. etc. So I, I just wanted to contribute that little bit there because I really did try to figure this stuff out while I was still a Scientologist and Sea Org member and had access to documents that are not even out in the public record yet. Yeah. And I still couldn't do it, you know, so yeah. uh, so it does take. An, an enormous amount of effort to to disentangle what this is all about, you know. 
And what happened um, was that the guardians office confessed at a meeting to the mission holders and the mission holders are the only people making money. And, you know, someone like Martin Samuels, Kingsley Wimbush, uh, Ben Corridon, they were making a lot of money. And uh, they were, of course, the recruitment end of Scientology. People flowed into the organization. It, when they broke the mission holders network, the recruitment to Scientology was gone. There's a brief period in the 90s with the Jeff uh, Hawkins managing to get Dynetics back on the bestseller list. How on earth? Yeah, and that was actually late 80s even because that had yeah. died by the mid 90s and they had oh. a um they had a, another little tiny effort in about 1997 or so uh mm. where they had put a campaign together and it and it was a total bust. And that well, it, was the last time I ever saw anything in terms of broad public push for for new people yeah and so i you know i mean samuels had five missions running the delphi schools he was making millions and he was you know the atmosphere in these missions i talked with with ben corridan a few years ago uh, 2013 i talked with him and and he was oh you know the camaraderie i miss it so much and and i sort of bent you do realize that you were feeding people to this machine that was destroying them. Yeah, but, you know, we had such good times. And that really was the feeling in the missions. I came into a mission and, and it was a great, happy sort of place. It, it didn't, you know, then you got into the orgs. Then you got in, you know, and the higher you went, the worse it got. No doubt about that. Yeah. Um, I so grew was... up in a mission, by the way. So I, I same, <laughs> exact same. There, here, same deal. You know, Carl Barney was the mission holder. My parents yeah. worked there. My father worked right under Carl Barney. I remember him. Mm. And and it was. The mission was this nice, relaxed, business-like place. People dressed up. It was There was carpet. There were nice paint on the walls. I mean, it was well put together. And they were bringing in money hand over fist. Yeah. And nobody wore sailor suits or, or no. yelled at anybody. Yeah. That's right. So... Basically, the, the Guardian's office people begged the forgiveness of the mission holders. And in the middle of this, you've got Alan Walter plotting this takeover. So I only came to find this out, you know, probably a year or so after I left. I, I met Alan Walter um, fairly briefly. And so Hubbard, find, you know, he is scared now that what's going to happen is that his whole organization is going to be taken over. That's why the Commodore's messenger organization, the Watchdog Committee, are set on, firstly, the Guardian's office to close them down. And we have the famous incident of Miscavige allegedly throwing a heavy glass ashtray at Mary Sue Hubbard and freaking her out enough that she was willing to, you know, sign off and say, okay, I, you know, and give over all of the corporate titles that she had. At the same time, Larry Brennan, who would later be Denise Brennan, um, is creating corporate sort out. And when I talked with him, uh, again, about 2013, it was really fascinating to find that he thought that I hadn't understood what he was doing with the uh, corporate sort out. And by that time, I'd already presented stuff in court that was used by the IRS to show exactly what was happening in corporate sort out, which was drawing separating everything out in the same way that you'll find it in, say, the Catholic Church, where 
every diocese is an independent organization. So if one, it's like uh, having compartments in your ship so that if one gets water in it, the rest will still be okay. And the idea was to create this organization that nobody would be able to penetrate. Well, it was very easy to penetrate because David Miscavige had got signed undated resignations from all the heads of the corporations in his safe, so I'm told. Um, Which is a, a, a trick he learned from Hubbard, who ran the organizations that way from the 1950s forward. Yeah, and the, the, the problem that they'd had was that Mary Sue Hubbard was a director, and they had to shove her out of the way, which Miscavige did by, let's call it sheer force of personality. Yes, um, good way of putting it. Because they were thing... two strong personalities. Mary Sue was not somebody who was just going to be pushed around. She was under L. Ron Hubbard. She had built this organization with him since the 1950s. I mean, Mary Sue was a strong personality. She David was Miscavige, person. it was, she was no pushover. No, she was the only person who stood up to Hubbard and, and with some frequency called him a con man. Yeah. Because from her perception, the technology did not work. Exactly. Um, but she loved him. And, she was uh, loyal. And she was loyal to her family. And she was loyal to Hubbard. And she, I think she believed in the cause of the thing, even if she didn't experience the personal gains that she wanted herself. I think probably like, like a, a lot of people, there's this feeling that some of the lower level stuff is quite good. It's just the body and stuff that's exactly. quite crazy but, but she, you know her bugbear was exteriorization Otto Rose told me that you know he you know he'd overheard one of these fights on the ship and Hubbard said well what do I have to do to prove it and she said I'd never been exterior and so Otto ran tens of hours of, until eventually they both went we can't do this anymore um but the guardians office had to go the, the mission holders had to go and because the game was being played by Alan Walter, that meant the fall of Bill Franks. It, it was why my friend was declared suppressive, I later found out, because he'd been told about this and had not reported it. Because oh. there was this hesitation, there was this sense that things had, in the 70s had gone very badly wrong and they needed to be rescued. And um, Hubbard was gone. And because of the system of, control that he'd set up, there was no way of verifying that it was him giving the orders. They were called advisors and they weren't signed. That's right. So, or they were signed with an X. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it came case. from X and you're like, who's that? Right. And everybody in the CMO, the Commodore's messengers all know that's Hubbard, mm -hmm. but everybody else is like, I, you know, and it was on, and it was obfuscation on purpose, of course, because he couldn't. And of course it gave, certain people a chance to write advices of their own if they so wished. <laughs> exactly. Not naming Ray Mittoff or anybody else in this sentence. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you didn't name Ray Mittoff there or anybody else. <laughs> no, I think it's best not to name Ray Mittoff, just in That's case. Right. Um, so, yeah, I left and everything turned around because at first, you know, I was Bill Robertson's representative on Earth and Bill, we, we had this meeting at the Crown Hotel, October the 18th, the anniversary of the Mission Holders Conference, uh, 1983. It's the first public meeting of um, Scientologists in the UK who were disillusioned uh, ever. 
and there were about 60 of us there. And there were, of course, um, what was his name, Mike Garfield and uh, Robert Springer. They were, they were guardians office people, stood at the door taking all our names to make sure we knew we were being watched. And then David Gaiman, who had been the deputy guardian for public relations from 1965 until he was busted in 8081, he just got back from literally digging ditches at Gilman Hot Springs, uh, which was the punishment for, they call them the crims, the criminals. And the senior guardians of his people, except for people in branch one that, that had actually committed the crimes. I think only Mo Budlong, Morris Budlong was sent out there. In fact, I'm not sure that he was. I think he may have just been sent straight to prison. Yeah, because he went to jail. Yeah, but none of the, so they sent, you know, the head of public relations and the head of social coordination and the training bureau, Kevin Kember, what have you, they all, and Jane Kember herself, I think, briefly went through something over there uh, at some point. Um, but at this it time... It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, the RPF was in full swing by this point, and the Guardian's office was not Sea Org, but physical punishments and discipline were common for staff. You know, they'd pull staff executive directors or senior executives of the churches up to the Sea Org bases and they just make them scrub pots and scrub toilets and, you know, dig ditches and, and dig weeds and stuff. And, Run and, around and, a pole. Yeah, exactly. They had them doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Not even Sea Org. You know, we're talking uh, about non-Sea Org here as uh, punishment drive. And this was, this was, uh, right, this, this, may, this continued because this went through the 80s. This went through the 90s. I engaged in this to a degree, not the same, not the same level of physical degradation, but certainly physical uh, work, hard labor used as punishment drive. That, that was still alive and well 20 years later. Yeah, it, 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 it's really shocking. Yeah. But uh, I mean, David Mayo at that time was forced to run around a pole in desert heat. And when I first met him in 1986, I thought he was a very cold fish. I, you know, I really, you know, didn't get along with him. And I, I spent a fair amount of time with him over a four-week period, interviewing him and talking with him. There's just something about him. I later realized it was because he didn't smile. And the reason he couldn't smile was because he'd lost all of his teeth running around a pole and being becoming dehydrated in the desert. And oh wow. Was, when oh, I'm wow. He made his acquaintance in 2013. I, I found him quite delightful. You know, it was, it was quite changed human being because he wasn't, you know, kind of keep his teeth hidden, you know, from so horrible Damn. things with people. Let me ask you one other question real fast about this meeting before we get into the specifics of it and stuff. What was Bill Robertson, Captain Bill, right? Captain Bill Robertson. So we all call him Captain Bill. That was his Sea Org title. I mean, he was a Sea Org officer and had he'd been in charge of a boat under Hubbard. Uh, he'd sailed around. He'd, you know, he was old school, original gangster Sea Org guy. And he was nuts. I mean, he said stuff that was pretty nutty stuff. But i curious because I have never obviously met or interacted with him. What, what was he like in person? Um, interesting. Mm. Um, I mean, background, he was a Mississippi motorcycle cop during uh -huh. the civil rights movement of the late 50s. So, uh, 
you know, a white redneck, six foot four motorcycle cop. Um, and he loved motorcycles. He had a Harley Davidson when I knew him. And um, he had been at St. Hill during the early 60s, had become part of the core group around Hubbard, was absolutely devoted to him. He was one of the 19 members of the Sea Project, the original Sea Organization. So um, he goes all the way back to the beginning then. I wasn't sure if he was part of that original core group. Yeah. Uh, okay. He takes uh, captain's papers. He actually becomes, he qualifies as a ship's captain. So he's the captain of the Apollo. Um, so, you know, he really is a Not captain. a usual thing for the Sea Org, by the way. Most of them were just trained, you know, on the boat. And they didn't go off to school. They didn't go off to nav school or captain school or any whatever other kind of school you do. It was all just internal. So that's actually kind of interesting that, that Bill it, was an exception to it, that. It almost makes you think that there might be some virtue in Scientology that so few people were maimed or killed by the incompetence that was all around. There were people who did get hurt, and there were, you know, the, but the, the craziness like keel hauling Otto Roast, for example, which Mary Sue Hubbard did with the Avon River, uh, which should have killed him. Um, and what is that? What does that mean, keel hauling? To keel haul is to tie somebody to a rope and pull them beneath the keel of a ship. It's a sort of um, pirate's punishment. Um, you Wait a minute, use... you literally drag the person under the yeah. boat? Yeah. And he, wow. I'd, that's something I had not heard of before. I think I've heard the term keelholing, but I I didn't actually get a definition for it. Holy cow. Well, it, it's come into English to, to mean to punish somebody very severely, to tell them off very badly, to, to keelhaul them. But I imagine, I mean, I've never looked into it, but I imagine people died. And Otto told me that, Mary Sue, this is the origin of overboarding. This is where it started. It wasn't Ron, it was Mary Sue. And... Um, for the, so for those people who tell me how wonderful Mary Sue was, she ordered this. So he's they they somehow managed to get the, the rope round. They tie him to it and they chuck him over. Now, Otto had, had been a merchant seaman, so he knew that the boat would have what's called a rubbing strake, a metal band around the hull, and that if he hit it, it would cave his head in. So he... He'd also done judo and he managed to bounce himself off the rubbing straight and just about hold his breath long enough and survive. Um, so, you know, dynetics Whoa, is dead. dude. I just got, I mean, surprise look right now. I First time ever hearing about this. I, obviously, it's always worse than you think. But damn, man. Where'd that, it, where'd that, it, wow, Mary Sue, damn. Okay, yeah, I and, knew she could it, be a harsh taskmistress, but damn. Yeah, you know, she, she was with the program. If, if people needed to be hurt, they would be hurt. There's no way that, that she was unaware of that. No. And she no. was, of course, running a massive international criminal operation. The, you know, the worst part of which is the kidnapping, false imprisonment, what, six months, I think, Meisner was held. Um, I'm sure yep. somebody will put right in the comments if I'm wrong. Uh, and that's good, please do. Um, that you... You know, breaking and entering, burglary, bugging government officials, stealing documents, forging government credentials, infiltrating the British Home Office, infiltrating the various French officers. They were 
Um, the Canadian case is almost never mentioned, but they were convicted in Canada as well as the U.S. And yeah, oh, interesting. Yeah, because we, we make a big deal about how they infiltrated the U.S. government at many levels, IRS, FBI, etc. Um, but yeah, foreign, foreign governments as well. I mean, let's not also forget they tried to take over Greece. There, there are cases that I, I talked with government officials to do with Italy, Spain, and Greece. Um, and it, I think the point is basically wherever you had uh, an organization and therefore a deputy guardian, some form of intelligence was being gathered. I, when I was, went, moved down to St. Hill in, in 1975, one of the guys that was, I'd better not mention his name, actually. Let's call him Dave, because that was his first name. Um, this guy lived in the house and he would disappear for several days together. And then he'd come back. Years later, I find out that he's a member of Branch One, the Covert Data Collection Bureau. And the idea is that they will, if they want something done in a the country, they'll send Dave in, he'll do it, and then he'll leave. So there's what, minimum exposure. What, what kind of thing would they want done? The kind of things that Branch One did, which mm. was theft. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? um, he apparently, I was told, ran off with uh, part of the, um, the war chest of the, the Guardian's office. He and, um, <laughs> Surprise. Told, yeah. He and another guy got the, you know, got the slush fund and, and ran because they could see what what was going to happen otherwise. Yeah, and I was just thinking they probably, saw the, you know, probably saw the writing could, on the wall, yeah. <laughs> nobody could get the money back from them because it, it didn't exist. It wasn't on the wall. <laughs> How dare you abscond with our stolen money? Oh, terrible stuff. <laughs> terrible stuff. <laughs> well, but, please, please continue. I, I, I got you off on a bill. Yeah, and let's, let's talk there. about Bill be, yeah. because Bill's, Bill's story is, is incredible. I... You know, within days of leaving, and, and my perception, you know, my perception was that Hubbard was gone and that some horrible tyrants had taken over. And they, you know, there were rumors about the FBI having taken over. But certainly the feeling that was coming from above was horrible. And I didn't want any part of it. When David Miscavige talked about being tough and ruthless, I could deal with. The idea of tough, that sometimes you have to do that. Ruthless, not having any mercy, that, that's beyond me. At that point, you've become a psychopath where you have no mercy. You know, it, there is no, you know, there's no excuse for me for that, especially if you claim to be running a religion. Not that I, or, or indeed, I, I don't remember anybody when I was involved talking about it being a religion. That was something that was for the IRS, basically. It was to get tax exemption. There were, you know, nobody, I, I attended one, one wedding service, and that was it. In nine years in Scientology, that was the only service I attended. And nobody went to the chapel at St. Hill on a Sunday. Some guy would just read out of a book, you know. But religion, it's, it's important. I mean, as, as um, one judge, I think it was, pointed out that they'd taken on all of the trappings of religion. They had learned to do all the things that made it look like a religion. And I think that's true. I think Hugh Urban actually makes that point in his book about Scientology. Yep. It's all window dressing. Yeah. Um, he nonetheless calls the book Scientology a new religious movement. It's like, well, you've just proved it isn't, mate. You know? But no, it's, it's, it's not a bad book at all. Um, and he's a good man. Um, 
but Bill was much larger than life. Alan Walter was kind of fatter than life. Bill was larger than life. And my first contact was being given a pack of what were called sector operations bulletins or SOBs, as I like to think of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, they were, some of them were typed and some of them were handwritten. The handwriting looked exactly like Hubbard's. I, I really? went and did it. Yeah, I, I went and did a comparison and the only difference was the capital A. Every other letter. And this is again. Bill's writing, Captain Bill. Maybe. I didn't know that. I didn't know that, did I? I get this pack of stuff. It's oh. got what looks very, I've never seen anything as close. You know, I, I know that people who did the briefing course would often start talking like Ron. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes that's, that's a thing. Tape. That's and a thing, Yeah. <laughs> Good, all right, I got that. Um, <laughs> never double acknowledge. Um, nope, nope. But, but, you know, these things had come out. They were signed Astar Parmegian. And uh, we, we should get into this. We should publish these things. Make yeah, what? And, Putting the bits together was, was you know, it took me a few weeks, but I read these things. It basically said that Elron Hubbard, who is here called Elron Elray, Elron being E-L-R-O-N, Elron Elray, has left the body. He is on the mothership. Don't pull that face, Chris. He's on the mothership. This is all true. And he is telepathically communicating to Astar Parmegian, okay. which is the signature on these handwritten things. They're signed Astar now it took me a little while and, and the idea is basically simple the Marcabians, spoken of fondly in a couple of lectures by Hubbard way back uh, as these alien people from the Markab system have landed there are 200,000 of them they're in Switzerland their front organization is transcendental meditation in 1986 so you can check this see if it happened they are going to use a gold crisis to basically take over the world. And from then on, we've had it. So this is what we've got to fight against. And um, then I meet Bill. So it's not the Sykes, it's not the big governments, it's the Markabians in Switzerland. Yeah, that's okay. who you've got to watch a lot for. Okay, good. And operating through transcendental meditation. Right. Well, TM is an interesting practice. So sure, that makes sense. It's an interesting practice that made a lot more money than Scientology. <laughs> yes, it has. Fortune left by Mahesh, the nasty little Mahesh, is yeah. still being bought over all these years later in the Indian courts. And it, I think it ran to $8 billion. Jesus. So, well, you got people who are going to fight for a long time for that money. Yeah. And, you know, It'll doubtless lead them to meditative bliss, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and maybe the maybe their levitation. They they that they, they for for anybody who doesn't know, by the way, just real fast, TM is a destructive cult at the highest levels. I mean, it gets it gets really crazy really fast. Mm -hmm. And but you really only get that at the at when you when you process up to the highest levels. At the beginning, it's a lot like Scientology. It looks good, it sounds good, it feels good. You're doing it, and it's like, what's the what's the big deal? This isn't culty. I'm only doing this 10, 20 minutes a day. Why is this a problem? It's not. It's not if you're meditating 10 or 20 minutes a day. Who cares? But if you start thinking that you need to meditate 8, 9, 10, 12 hours a day until you levitate off the ground, and that's how you're going to bring about world peace, by the way, 
now we're getting into something else, right? And there's child neglect and abuse and other things that go on there. So that's why I just had to pipe in with that. Yeah, and with the the hopping, the <laughs> the levitating, I interviewed a um, a woman um, after I published <laughs> Beast of Blue Sky. I was approached by Collins Publishers, biggest publisher in the world, to to write a book about transcendental meditation, and I kind of went. All right, and I spent six months looking into it, as well as doing what I was doing relating Scientology still. And then I decided I didn't want to be known as a cult expert for the rest of my life. It's like, yeah. But I interviewed. So that's, that's where I met Pat Ryan, who yep. is still a friend of mine. Yep. Uh, me having you know qualified at the Maharishi University, an accredited university in the US, had tunnel vision. From all, all of the meditation, he, when I saw him again, I hadn't seen him for years, and I saw him a couple of years ago. We were in Rotterdam, and I said, "Have you still got tunnel vision?" He was like, "No, I'm fine." But they paid him a large amount of money to to go away. But I interviewed a, a woman in her thirties who had actually fractured her coccyx with the hopping. So, that, and that's one of the really most painful things you can do. Um, yeah, her Great. meditation days are probably over. Yeah, just sitting down from then on, just moving will be painful. I, I knew somebody yeah. else with a batch of coccyx. Um, so, you know, the technique, that technique can be extraordinarily dangerous. On the 10 or 20 minutes a day of reciting the name of um, a deity or demon, um, that too can have quite significant problems. There's a condition called relaxation-induced anxiety. I know it sounds silly, but people who practice mindfulness seem to be unaware of this. People who practice TM seem to, although the National Institute of Health has spent, spent $23 million researching TM and found nothing positive about it, and has now spent $100 million researching mindfulness and has found no single positive benefit for mindfulness, despite all the things we're told about scientific studies, there aren't any. Well, you know, good to know that. Good to but know that. What we do know is that a percentage of people, if you sit them down and get them to get the Gansfeld effect, the hallucination of staring at something and your brain filling things in, it will make it'll make their anxiety worse. And mm. even 10 or 20 minutes a day. The recommendation is this, meditation is one of my subjects. I, I learned it in Zen Buddhism when I was 17 or 18. Um, the recommendation is this, make sure that you get some exercise before you meditate, if you're going to meditate. And don't for a minute think that meditation was ever meant to be a relaxation technique. It's meant to be a mind-screwing technique. It's meant to make your mind explode, bursting the bag is the term used in Zen. So the idea it'll make you all peaceful and calm and serene, it, it, that's not what it was designed for, you know, so. An endless font of information that John A. Tack is. This is yeah. endlessly fascinating. All right, let's, we're yeah, gonna, to let's, let's get back to Bill. Yeah. <laughs> so um, here's, Bill gave, because, you know, we had this meeting at the Crown Hotel, bits of it, about half of it is still online. The, the night before I talked to Guy Out, a film guy made films, he filmed it. He gave me the film cassettes, um, VHS cassettes, and then he went back in. 
Oh so my God, really? My, he went back into Scientology? Yeah, it only lasted 24 hours, but I got the tapes of that so, night. So you have these videos of this OT committee meeting? I, I have three hours of... Wow, okay. Uh, so David Gaiman arrived, having just come back from... Oh, by the way, David Gaiman is Neil Gaiman, the famous author, science fiction fantasy author. That's his dad. Neil yeah. Gaiman is Neil Gaiman is David Gaiman's son, and he was a Scientologist for many years. Just out, totally out in him right now. I think this has been acknowledged. He's not now, though, at least according to everything I can see or know. I about think him. he's quiet about it because I think his sisters may well still be involved, parts of yeah. the family. But he was That's not right. simply a Scientologist. He was a Class Eight auditor. Having seen the condition his father was in on the 18th of October 1983 when he burst into our meeting, he looked, you can see him on film, he looks completely exhausted, yellow, worn out, destroyed. And he stood up on the stage and he, he, he went, go another mile with the church. You know, don't, don't leave. Remember Ampronistics. And I, I think everybody in the room was going, remember what? You know, you'll have to go and look it up. And it was a group that left Scientology in about 1965, where some quite senior Scientologists decided they'd had enough of Hubbard and um, all got themselves declared suppressive. A recurring sure. theme, by the way, through the 1950s, yeah. 60s, 70s, and 80s for Scientology. If you're on a, on, a, on a meta look, you can go back to newsletters, publications. I've got them from the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And you can see people complaining about Hubbard and, and breaking away. And, you know, hey, Dianetics sounds like it's pretty cool, but maybe if we do this and this, it'll be better. Oh, Hubbard doesn't like our ideas. And so, fuck Hubbard, we're breaking away and we're going to go do our own thing. Well, the first one is around about October 1950. So Dianetics is released on the 9th of May. The foundation has opened in the April. And in October, Art Sepos, the head of Hermitage House, which the medical publisher, which had published Dianetics, withdraws the book, although it sold 150,000 copies because he now considers it to be fraudulent. And he commissions Dr. Joseph Winter, who wrote the introduction to Dianetics and you know, worked with Hubbard for the three months leading up to publication of Dianetics. He commissions Winter to write a doctor's report on Dianetics, which the last time I looked was still available. Mm -hmm. And here you have the, so within months of the launch of Dianetics, here is a medical doctor saying, look, I think some of these techniques may have value. In fact, I think they do have value. But this man, <laughs> and it, yeah, every few months, right through the 60s, there are people leaving because they've got close to Hubbard. And they've seen that, that he is, he's in it for the power and the money. And, you know, I think in the 50s, there are a lot of stories about his sexual exploits during that time. It would appear that at some point in the mid-60s, he becomes impotent and they didn't have Viagra. And so there are no more, you know, apart from the Ann Bailey affidavit in the, from the a supposed meeting with him in the 70s, there are no more sexual shenanigans. John McMaster told me there were little red-headed babies all over South Africa and Australia, you know. Turning back to uh, Captain Captain Bill, remember Captain Bill? Meeting, yes. This is a song about Captain <laughs> Bill. Um, I, I, he gives this, it was astonishing. Um, eventually when he got sick and tired of David Gaiman keeping going, I, I'm gonna be leaving, I've got to go and just keeping on talking. So eventually Bill did this, 
I have been with Ron for more than many centuries, if I'm not doing it at the volume he did it. A friend of mine who was in the front row said she had a headache for a week from this. More than many centuries. And, uh, you know, told us about his new civilization plan, the uh, special zone plan, um, how we needed to be the free zone. He invented that term as far as I know. Um, and that what would be significant about this, and this was very interesting, was that there should be no central command structure. There must now be free nodes because that way it would be impossible to stop the independent movement as we started to call it soon thereafter. So I, I meet this astonishing character. I've read these sector operations bulletins and I believed it. I believed the Markabians had come. I, you know, Bill had authority. But then we went to Spain. I think it was November 12th. But not very long afterwards, we go to Spain, to Marbella, which was great, a couple of days. In and, the, and who's we, your family, or is this just yeah, you? Or? Well, it was, it was a group. There were about a dozen of us from East Grinstead. So, oh, so, okay, so so former Scientologists. Yeah, the, yeah. My, the girl, my girlfriend, who would, who would later become my first wife, and various people. And there, Bill had put on this pageant where he'd got all these little flags he'd made and um, the music that he played, which was pretty scary. I mean, I remember the song that went, we all live only to die in our ships up in the sky. We all die only to live. Honor, truth, mercy and justice is all we can give or something like that which I was later told he'd had the Seorg marching band perform in the, on the streets of Clearwater. So that was how he'd scared the living daylights out of the residents of Clearwater. So he wrote these little tunes and he did these things. And during, during that, uh, David Gaiman turned up again, along with John Chadder, who had been the head of um, the estates uh, for the Guardian. You know, he built the so-called castle and stuff like that and documents disappeared from Bill's room, which he attributed to these two gentlemen. I have no idea, frankly. I'm sure they're completely innocent. Oh, Actually, of course. David Gaiman's gone, so he can't sue me for libel, so I think he did. <laughs> um, but the, it was pretty... pretty we, we also, during that meeting, Peter Warren, and when we talked last time, I, I said that Peter Warren had arrived at the Birmingham organization. He'd been hung off the side of a ship as his first day's experience in the Sea Org. Hubbard had come out and said, you know, put lights on for him. You know, don't not give him a security harness or bring him back up here, but put the lights on so he can keep slaving away on the side of the ship. Um, Peter Warren turned up at this meeting. It's only, I only ever met him twice, and this was the second time, and said, did we want to hear a message from Diana Hubbard? And of course we did. And he got up on the stage and started giving us a lecture about you know, how terrible Captain Bill was. And they carried him out. Four people picked him up and carried him out. It's great. Lovely adventures you, you get around this subject. If you Damn, man. There were some passionate folks back in the day on this stuff. They really were. Bill gave me a document at this time, which he said was the third draft of Revolt in the Stars, a screenplay by Ron Hubbard, um, this version of it written by Suzette Hubbard, he said, um, Ron's younger daughter by Mary Sue Hubbard, who is long gone from Scientology, along mm -hmm. with um, her brother Arthur, of course. Um, 
And this is basically Hubbard writing a screenplay of the OT3 incident. Now, in OT3, Operating Thetan Level 3, we are told 75 million years ago all this bad stuff happened. And if you re-stimulate this in somebody, they will die within two days. So he wants to make a movie out of it. Which has constantly bothered me. I have never been able to reconcile those two things in my head with Hubbard. I, I, I can't. This doesn't make any sense to me. Well, if you find anything that does make any sense about Hubbard. <laughs> Fair um, point. A multiple drug abuser sets up Narconon. You know, I, I know, I know. I know. A guy so who is an, an evident and constant and chronic and pathological liar reveals the truth. Right. Truth revealed. There it is. Yeah. Revolt in the stars. This is a thing. I, I, I've got a copy of the of the, at least one version of the script for it. And yeah. the script has got Elron Elray in it. It's got Chu and Chi and Min in it. Because um, I think Hubbard was a was a fan of those uh, kind of oh, what was it called Charlie Chan or something the nineteen thirties movies about Chinese detective, uh, which are incredibly racist. Yes, very. Um, so but two, Hubbard was two, a racist. I mean, let's not make any bones oh, about that. Absolutely. Oh, you know, he was horribly racist. Yeah, you know the, the I think we we mentioned is um, what is it. Uh, the thing about South Africa is not a police state was one of his statements. Yeah. And when you see in film of blacks being hit with shambox to get them in their place, you kind of go, yes, it is. You know, and he, last time when we talked, we talked about uh, the bulletin he wrote about interrogating people who don't want to cooperate by strapping the can, which was devised in South Africa for the South African police, I believe, you know. That's right. Use um, e-meters, not guns, was the name of the issue that Hubbard wrote, giving very specific instructions about how to interrogate somebody using an e-meter, even if they don't talk. Yeah. You can put, you can hang up or write on a chalkboard all the letters of the alphabet and numbers and just start pointing and look for the, look for the needle reaction. And there's, and, um, there it is. You can ask direct questions and see what the reaction is. Yep. Yes, no as well. Yeah. yeah. Last time this method was used by the King of Morocco on his own people, and he executed people because they had reeds on the emitter, which is, you know, if Thorin Hubbard had had a conscience, that should have weighed heavily on it, but I'm pretty sure that he didn't. Nope. Uh, it doesn't go with the territory of that, that kind of mind. Um, so, Astor Parmegian also, if you look in your screenplay, appears. And there is a bit of a clue in there. Astor Parmegian was a nightclub singer at the hmm. time of OT3, who performed for, she was the mistress of Elron Elray, more recently known as Elron Hubbard. And that's where the Captain Bill story got really strange because Bill moved to East Grinstead for, I think he was there for eight months. He came and saw me every couple of weeks because I'd stopped believing, but I was still the chairman of the OT Committee UK. And I don't know, I don't know why this happened. There is no explanation. I, I certainly by January 84, I, I, I was finished. I, I didn't want to do any more of it. And my whole social group was ex, you know, 
independent Scientologists. And they, when I, somewhere around August 84, I said, look, I, I can't keep doing this, guys. I don't believe in this stuff. And they came and begged me to keep running Reconnection magazine. And, you know, somehow I ended up being involved in the legal defense of Robin Scott, Ron Lawley, Steve Bisbee, Morag Balmain. Um, and these are the folks who had been, this, this, is this the time, If do I have it right, that these are the people who had dressed up in Sea Org uniforms, walked into the advanced organization in Copenhagen, and walked out with the OT materials? That's right. Ron, Ron Lawley and Morag Balmain actually went in, and Ron grew a handlebar moustache in case anybody recognized him. They put on their old Sea Org uniforms. They claimed to be from the Religious Technology Center. They expected they'd just get a copy, you know, if they were lucky, they might get a copy of OT5 out of there. They were given all of the packs, and it meant that they actually brought out, and the world would never have seen this otherwise, they brought out the original OT5 pack and the revised OT5 pack. So I've read both of them, and there are six issues in the revised pack, and it was said that people like me who'd done OT5 in the David Mayo way from the David Mayo pack had become bad OTs, bad boys. And that we had the supernatural powers, which by now you know I do. Come on, can't deny it. Um, <laughs> we had the supernatural powers, but we had been turned evil because of David Mayo's bad intentions. So I was able to check the packs against each other, letter by letter. There are six bulletins that are different. The only difference is the name David Mayo has been removed from six of them. And the name Elwin Hubbard put in its place. It's incredible the effect that just a name can have. Um, wow. You know, I was, I was told in the 80s when I got into Scientology in 85 and then started doing uh, staff in 87, I went down in 1988 to Los Angeles and, was, uh, and there had been a massive effort to remove any David Mayo influence on bulletins and issues and stuff because mm -hmm. there were a lot of issues that had his name on oh. You know, yeah. the TR's bulletin had been heavily revised and, and added to, and there were other issues. There was a happiness rundown. And that was the thing. They said it had all been mayonized and they needed to de-mayonize it, right? And this was this horrible thing that had, that had happened. And I was only coming in at the after of all of this. I didn't have any of this pre-experience with any of this nonsense. So I kind of just bought into it. I was like, oh, okay, David Mayo, bad guy. And read the story of a squirrel and was like, oh, yeah, he's a bad guy. And that was it. That was my exposure to it. But I thought it was kind of funny, the whole, uh, the whole mayonized thing, you know. And then to hear, yeah, the only difference was his name. I, par for the course for Scientology. Of course, the reality versus the rumor line, you know, are two completely different things. Just a misunderstood on the word mayonnaise. It's not mayonnaise at all. Right. Um, Looking at all of this, these sector operations bulletins, it became pretty evident that Astor Parmegian, who'd signed them, remember the nightclub singer, was Captain Bill. So Bill kept coming along, and I always got on well with him. He told, you know, there's material in Piece of Blue Sky that comes from Bill. Um, particularly about the advanced organization in Edinburgh in 1968, where a man called James Stewart committed suicide, who 
Um, you know, there was a hell of a tangled story around him. And it was Bill who admitted to me that as a punishment, he had had the guy crawl across a wet slate roof, steep pitched slate roof in Edinburgh and back. And he admitted to me that having had an epileptic fit and being told that, that made him a downstat and he got to stop doing it, uh, having banged his head, he had a bandaged head, he was crawling around the waiting room, picking the lint out of the carpet, you know, as, as a punishment. And Bill was willing to admit that he had ordered that. Um, I was, David Mayo was there and I interviewed him about it. And Robert Kaufman in his book, his very interesting book, Inside Scientology, even the title of Janet Reitman's book is not original. Um, he was there as well when, you know, what had really happened was, you know, Scientology actually finding that he'd committed suicide his wife calls them in to clean the OT3 pack out of the room because you were allowed to take them out then. Uh, this is the first time OT3 was publicly delivered, of course, in Edinburgh in 1968. And then the police were called. And the police were told he was a new person. He had nothing much to do. He's on OT3, the highest course there is. He also, I believe, was the head of the Durban organization. And it, it was so. Bill was useful in, in checking stories. I, you know, my, my usual thing was, you know, try and find two people who, who you know, have elements of the same story. And it really did surprise me because, you know, you've got this Gordon Melton, Brian Wilson thing that you can't trust ex-members of, of groups. Well, au contraire. I interviewed so many people and the stories, the only one that, that didn't match was whether or not the guy who had the food cart at St. Hill, who was not a Scientologist before the canteen was social, whether or not he was declared for not having apple pie. Two people told me he was declared for not having apple pie, but another person said, no, he wasn't. But with almost every other detail in the Peace Blue Sky, I have two sources, and it amazed me how the stories fitted together, because often I'd find different aspects of the story from different people. And I'd be able to tell somebody, you know, what had been happening in the next room, you know, that it was Hubbard had told Diana and Diana had told Alex Sibersky and Sibersky had taken the fall for the Battle of Britain in June 74. I was often sometimes I remember one occasion where I was able to tell a wife what had actually happened to her husband, you know, so. It, but it, it, it surprised me at how, how factually accurate um, most of, almost all of the material I was given by people was. You could check it against documents. Right, so exactly. Another point I want to uh, highlight here, just in what you just said, we weren't trying to make this point, but it's very clear in what you were just saying. The compartmentalization of information, the way that you can keep things secret merely by, you know, who you tell and who you don't tell or how you get somebody to tell other people something completely different from the reality of the situation. And then you have 20 people who are absolutely convinced that X happened when in fact it was Y. So yeah. it's, so it's, fa you know, it's, it's, it, you know, this doesn't just happen at David Miscavige's level or at Mike Rinder's level or something where there's this compartmentalization of information. This is, this kind of filters all the way down the line and it's just kind of how Scientology operates and how it always has operated. And I just wanted to highlight that because it's not just a top of the level thing. 
you know. I mean, I wrote a paper long ago called um, Scientology Religion or Intelligence Agency. Mm. And right. of course, the need to know basis is a function of an intelligence agency, not normally of a religion. Exactly. And it, everything functioned to protect Hubbard. So, I mean, we mentioned Mary Sue Hubbard. Look, the reality is that Mary Sue Whip, when she got with Ron Hubbard, she did what he did. And I have no reason to doubt what Elrond Hubbard Jr. Nibs said about his first re-meeting at the age of 18 with his father. He, he was abandoned, what, when he was uh, seven, uh, with no further payments made to his mother by his father, very little contact indeed. Um, fortunately, Hubbard's parents looked after the, you know, financially looked after the family, or there'd have been real trouble. But he rolls up, you know, eager to spend time with his dad is immediately given amphetamines and laid on a couch and got to recite what would become history of man um the cold-blooded and factual account of your last 60 trillion years as i'm fond of uh, citing and mary sue was part of that series of studies you know the two weeks in which the 60 trillion years was investigated it's speed that's why they call it speed because you can do everything well, if you work it out mathematically, 67 million times faster than a normal person would, you know, it's history of the last 60 trillion years. I know, I know. It just gets deeper and deeper with this stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's, again, let's fast forward well, back. So, okay. No. So you're, so you find yourself out of Scientology in charge of this OT committee, but then you really, your beliefs are just like, okay, this stuff is crazy and I'm, and I'm out, but they keep pulling you back in or trying to keep you around because what? you have organizational skills, you have speaking skills, and you're an interesting person. <laughs> well, thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm kind of gathering that was the, the picture that we're sort of painting here of immediately after you leaving Scientology within a year or two I, or so, yeah? I, I, I was gone within four months. Um, and gone and from the independent movement? Well, gone from Scientology, gone from any belief. So okay. I leave in October the 18th. By January 84, I've gone, I don't want to do any more of this. All right. I Have you think... given up the Markabian idea at this point? The Swiss and all I that? gave up the Markabian idea. It lasted, I think, about two weeks because yeah. when I got to Spain and saw what, what Bill was up to, I realized he was a fruitcake. Okay. And uh, But also the, the, the whole paranoid thing, you know, it, the, the shock of suddenly not being involved. I, I got very ill. Talk about PTSness. Mm. Um, for a day or two, a doctor thought I had meningitis in September 83. And it was just this reality change where I had to say, well, this organization that I've been devoted to um, and have never spoken against and, have, you know, I'm complete, a true believer in, in Scientology, if not in the kind of jackboot methods of the organization, which had very early on sort of, you know, I'd drawn away from that, but I still believed that they held this technology and realizing that, that I'd been through the looking glass, that actually the opposite was true. This was actually, this was an organization that was built not to liberate, but to enslave. And it was destroying people's lives. And of course, because I stood up publicly, no, nobody in the UK had ever said, here I am, come and talk to me. 
you know, about Scientology and your experience, how can I help? Maybe you've done that before. And there were a few of us, there was my friend Carol Kander in, in Denmark, for example, who were doing this thing and saying, well, well, come and talk to us. And we started to hear terrible horror stories, which had, we'd been walled off from. You know, so uh, I remember being phoned by this woman fairly frequently and um, she was quite evidently drunk. She was quite evidently, you know, quite smart. And she, you know, I mentioned her to somebody else and said, you know, I have no way of knowing if this is the way she was before Scientology. And the woman I was speaking to said, no, I knew her well. She was a very successful corporate executive, a woman, right, in the 60s, a successful corporate executive. Everything was going really well for her. Then she got into Scientology and ended up an alcoholic and talking to me on a Tuesday night or what have you. Um, so we started seeing the damage, we started seeing that. And my endeavor changed that, that where I had initially left to preserve Scientology, to keep it pure and to make it available. I now changed my aim to help people who've been affected badly by Scientology. And you know that continued for some years. The independents wanted me because I provided them with cover from harassment. I knew how to get to media, or, or learned how to get to media, I should say. I learned about the law. I, I learned, you know, I created cases that were successful. It was 10 years on the Lawley case, and um, they had no lawyers by the end. So the whole case was developed by me. And the point of the case was to, to frighten Scientology so they would walk because they'd brought the case. And sure enough, the moment the, the case was meant to start, they said, all right, we're withdrawing the case. So um, sadly, the 37 and a half thousand pounds, which was my bill for those 10 years, was not paid by Ron Lawley or Robin Scott. So I hope they're watching and feel a little bit of guilt and because you know, <laughs> I went bankrupt because I didn't have that money. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty sucky situation there. Let's let's talk about, uh, you know, well, let me finish the captain. Let me finish. Oh, the captain yeah, 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 yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Because what happened was that, that Bill actually took up with a friend of mine, um, this wonderful French woman. She'd have been about 50 at this time. Um, and it, it, I don't know, I can't remember how I came to meet her, but 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 we were friends. We, you know, she'd come over and apologize for having eaten garlic and don't come close to me. And um she was just great. There was just something really, yeah, you know, and she was very attractive as well. And so Bill went and lived with her. I think he was with her for eight months. And one day I came down to find Mary Sylvie in in my kitchen talking with my wife and um she said on a saturday night oh, sorry on, on a saturday we we go to an outsized women's clothing store and we buy bill will point to the things he wants and we buy them she said in the eight months we've been together we've never had sex what happens is at eight o'clock in the evening, Bill dresses up, possibly in a ball gown. You know, this is a six foot four Mississippi motorcycle cop, balding, you know, dressed up as Astar Parmegian. Remember Astar Parmegian? 
not an Italian cheese, as you may have thought, um, and sang his songs to El Ron El Rey. And this is the founder of the Free Zone. Wow. Just as crazy as the founder of Scientology. He once said to me, he said, there are two things I could tell you that would make anybody leave Scientology and have nothing more to do with it. And so you can imagine that for weeks I was trying to prize these things out of them. I, I came to the conclusion that one of them might have been some kind of sexual interlude between himself and Hubbard, um, mm. and which would be unimaginably weird, frankly. But, yeah, very much so. Uh, so cross-dressing? I mean, not not really transgender. Not he wasn't no. trying to. But he, he he wasn't he wasn't sexually active, and as I say, Mary Sylvie was a very attractive woman, um, even though she did eat garlic on a Sunday. Um, so he was not heterosexual. Whether he was sexually active at all, I do not know. Um, but this was just a th he just had a thing about dressing in ball gowns at eight o'clock at night and singing like a female nightclub singer. Yes. And the point okay. was basically that he'd been Ron's girlfriend at the time of OT3. I have been with Ron for more than many centuries. Okay. Now, and admittedly, this could all have just been something that existed in his headspace with no real. No, I think world. it's true. I think he actually was Ron Hubbard's girlfriend, seventy-five million. Oh, no, no. I mean, I mean, as far as actually this, this, uh, th th what you just sort of posited about him and Hubbard hooking up—that's that's, that's con pure conjecture. It's conjecture based upon observation of of Bill. Understood. Understood. So. It, it's a seriously made conjecture that there is a process among Crowleyite followers. Some of them, not all of them, a lot of them, I think, are, are quite decent people. For you know, because it's a long time since I had any contact. But in writing Blue Sky, I was in touch with the OTO in New York. I was in touch with the OTO in London. I, you know, they, they were very helpful. But there is a Crowley dictum that that you'll find among other magicians, which is do that which is most offensive to gain power. Now, Crowley himself used to walk around. He, he wrote the, he had a razor blade in his pocket and that if he ever broke his will, he would use the blade to hurt himself. The will is developed by committing acts that are considered to be immoral by others. So homosexuality, which was considered to be immoral, of course it isn't, um, would be practiced uh, he was a heroin addict by the time he died. He was also an advocate for cocaine. Um, can we say this on YouTube? Uh, I, I know you've used the F word, but there is a, a point where Crowley talks about um, worshipping the goddess by drinking the fluid uh, that is created uh, by gonorrhea. Uh, pretty disgusting. Okay, good. Got it's that. not the most disgusting thing I've heard of. I think it's called Lucaria or something like that. Yeah, the second time. most disgusting thing I've ever heard in my life. That, and I'm not going to share the first one. It was something Good. I learned in Scientology. So, cool. Yeah. We'll talk about that one later. Yeah, we'll talk about that some other time. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, the, man. The point is basically doing things that are disgusting and vile and horrible. Yeah. It actually, the, the looking glass 
changes. If you're trying to be a good and decent and moral person, you, you go one way. Of course, we have this story, um, which I had from a senior case supervisor in Los Angeles, who I trust absolutely. She was somebody of complete integrity, that she saw the folder, she supervised the folder of a woman who said that in a, an auditing session, Hubbard had said to her that he had had sex with Diana, his daughter, when she was 14 years old. Now, I am willing to name her because other people have. When I first, I said, with one of his children at the age of 14. But after I first, a few months after I first told this story publicly, I can't remember when that was. Uh, I think it was probably at the bunker in 2013. Somebody else named Diana. So, uh, you know, this, I don't know that anything happened, but the point was you then, there's a story about him having sex with a 12 year old, uh, having sex with raping a 12 year old boy in Morocco. Oh, and okay. the ship was dropped for that. So you get these stories, which you look at me, oh, that's just crazy. When you become too incredible, you become invisible. Oh, that's an Aaron Hubbard quote. When you become yes, too is. incredible, you become invisible. Yes, it is. I am completely open-minded about information about Hubbard. And the thought that he might do something to control another human being that would violate their moral code, because I think with Captain Bill, the problem would be that he, you know, that, that he cross-dressed, couldn't care less, couldn't care less about his sexual life at all, frankly, as long as he didn't hurt anybody or coerce anybody, but that he did not have sex with Mary Sylvie did indicate that he was not heterosexual, that he did dress up and most nights sing songs to run from 75 million years ago or on the mothership or what have you indicated a fixation which because of the cross-dressing i would indicate would probably be erotic Fair not enough. just somebody dressing up in women's clothes because that's what they like because as we know most transvestites are heterosexual they're men who are heterosexual who dress as women and you then get into sissification and all of this great good fun, which thankfully we are never going to talk about. Um, but so I had the sense that, and there were two things, he said there were two things, and one of them was that, who knows what the other one was, but one of them might have been that. But so that, that's my captain, I mean, the, the end for Captain Bill, as I said, you know, I, we always had friendly conversations. I never saw him again. After Mar he'd gone, Mary Sylvie came because he'd gone, mm. and I never saw him again. I heard that he died because he had a tumor in his throat, and he refused to have the surgery to uh, put a pipe through so he could breathe. Okay. Uh, because he was going to use his powers as an OT instead. Right. So I don't. I don't think he even made it to sixty. I, I don't. He wasn't that old when he died. Okay. Um, okay. He, he was certainly. Pretty, he was pretty crazy. He told me that he'd found the two psychiatrists who were behind the whole plot uh, in LA in 1968, and he'd um, chased them both out of town. Uh, he told me that when he was head of the Los Angeles org, uh, he'd had people up on the roof watching for the spaceships at night after they'd done their, their day. So he was he was gone. He was off with the fairies, you know. Yeah. In the sense of elves, rather than the sense of... Yeah, yes, of course. Well, he he definitely... I think we can um, probably most 
generously say he lived in a different reality than than other people. <laughs> Certainly one way of putting, and he was very, you know, his machismo, you know, they had a Harley Davidson and, you know, all of this stuff. And then he's going and, you know, the division in his life, you know, whatever had happened to him to separate him off in this way. And he was, he, he had a, a kind of magnetism about him. He was, as I say, larger than life. That's right. Um, and, and, and funny because Hubbard, Hubbard is described that way and it doesn't translate well to photos, but it, no. but it, but it was a, it was a thing. Enough people have told me that over the years in and out of Scientology that I, there was something about him too that was that was like that he had a presence that though mm -hmm. I, I i remember meeting a just in a cafe this was really weird i was in mosley in birmingham and uh, this guy walked in and uh, i was still involved in scientology and we got to talking and and he somehow came up that you know, the scientology center of the mission that was just across the street that that i was with that. And he said, oh, I, I met Ron Hubbard. He said, um, we boarded his ship in the Mediterranean. I was in the Navy. And um, I've never met anybody who disgusted and appalled me so much. He just was the most immediately repulsive human being I've ever met. And there is, a, there is something strange in this be, because Hubbard wasn't a handsome man. Let's face it, he had the secondary lip here, which you sometimes see sliding about on film. Um, you can see it on Shrinking World of, of Owen Hubbard. And as Cyril Vosper, the author of The Mindbenders and a, a dear friend of mine in the later years of his life, lovely, lovely, amusing man. He said that when he was walking on Tottenham Court Road in London and somebody came up to him with a clipboard and um, he'd say, oh, I, I knew Hubbard. And uh, he wouldn't say I'm the author of The Mindbenders, you know. I knew Hubbard, and they said, oh, you knew Hubbard, God, wow, you know, and said, so what was he like? What, what, just the thing you most remember about him, and Cyril would say every time he, he'd, he'd do the dramatic pause and he'd say, the thing I most remember is the smell, because his teeth were rotting in his head, and he had the most vile bad breath I've ever been near, and you know, of course, Cyril had left by, you know, the last time Cyril saw him was probably about 1965. So already you've got this character who's, you know, and people are charismatically struck by this. Well, it's then the odd though. It's it, on the hedge, you know. <laughs> I know, but how does that reconcile with pictures you see of him at St. Hill where he's surrounded by people smiling, laughing, everybody's having a good time. You see film of him coming back from uh, South Africa and waving and being greeted, and his teeth aren't falling out of his head in that film. I mean, there's, so yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I believe these things are have truth to them, but I, but at the same time, this is a man who was a serial philanderer in the fifties. He couldn't have been that hideous to behold because he could get he had quite a few women that were sleeping with him. I mean, it's just, it's this weird thing with this guy, you know? Well, I, I have had experience of a woman being with a man with dreadful halitosis. <laughs> I, I have met, I have met that in my life. Okay. That okay. If you look at the, the nature of infatuation in human beings, which, which is, you know, that's the bit that I pushed Yuval Lahore on after we met, where's infatuation in this model? Mm -hmm. of, of love that he was creating and 
it, it's something that's fascinated me for a long time. So you meet somebody and they're spontaneous. When you divorce them, they're impetuous. Right. Right. All, meet, the, all the good becomes bad. Right. Yeah. And, but they're the same qualities. And, and I think you, you know, have to get relatively close to somebody to, to smell them and, and we can tune that out. We, we of course tune out our own body smells so that we can smell the things around us. That's normal. Mm -hmm. You know about mm -hmm. that? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, you just get used to it. Yeah. Yeah. So, which is, which is why it's a good idea to wash because, <laughs> You know, or have friends who will be honest with you. you know. um, <laughs> but charisma is, you know, I'm with the sociologist Max Weber that, that it's something that's given to people. It's not something that they have. My understanding, you having been around human beings, is if you assume command and you take a commanding position, I, because I've given a fair amount of talks over the years, I'm quite used to going into a room full of people and silencing them. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a game. It, it, it's a, you are given this authority, which to me always feels utterly bogus. I, you know, I'm just a guy who reads books and talks about stuff. You know, so when you know, somebody used the word guru of me yet again recently, and, um, and they understood how much I dislike the term and you know, that, that they didn't really mean that they are in fact going to do everything I tell them to do, which is a shame because if they've got any money in their bank account. You know. <laughs> um, well, it's true. It's, it's true. And I, I've experienced similar things, of course, myself, um, you know, as a public speaker as a, and certainly as, a, as an old Sea Org member, hmm. um, you know, you walk into an org and you're in charge. That's just it. You just walk in there and you just assume that you're in charge and there's just no question about it. And when you have that attitude, people respond to it. It's it, certainly, I've used that to my advantage many, many times as a Sea Org member. Um, by necessity, you, you simply had to. That was what was expected. As a, as a civilian, not so much. But I've, but I've certainly, you know, when you, when you have the role of being a, a person who's going to address a lot of people, then you have to be a little yeah. bit larger than yourself. Assume you know? the beingness. Yeah, it's a, it's a way of saying it. You know, I, I haven't come up with a better way. The, the, the thing that interested me, or one of the many things that interested me in, in searching through Hubbard's life was he didn't appear to have any friends, ever. That there were, so people didn't get close to him. So interviewing, I think Reg Sharp was probably the closest. His the first name that came to my mind. I went, what about Reg? I know mm. Reg ended up getting declared. Mm. I mean, there's he nobody who him. lasted in Hubbard's inner circle. No one, no, even his wife, oh. no one. Right. She's the one who lasted longest, I think. Mary yeah. Says. And it's funny, isn't it? That the guardians of his people, they lasted, you know, kind of 15 years, all of mm -hmm. them, Herbie Parkhouse, Jane Kember, David Gaiman. Right. That, that, and that, whereas the turnover in the sea organization was, you know, you, you last two years without being in, in, the, in the rehabilitation project force. That's right. That's right. I think I think the number I read one time, and this was years ago. It's probably higher now. I think the number I read was five to one. Five people have left the Sea Org for every one person in it. Mm. No, something like that. Yeah, it should change their motto from "We come back" to "We go away." Exactly. <laughs> 
Exactly. All right, let's get back to your narrative here. So, because we're we're making baby steps here today. So, I mean, this is all great stuff. I know. (laughs) All right. So, okay. So, you mentioned getting involved in legal cases. So, what's the bridge between the independent stuff, right? And you going, okay, I I don't want to be doing this anymore. And you go to Spain, and you're like, yeah. To getting involved in activism and because because I wanted to mention earlier the onion layers you know you are going through these kind of at your process here right where you're stripping away the beliefs okay good you're seeing that it's you know it's not just it's not just the current leadership that's bad like no there's something really wrong with this subject these are layers we all go through right and some people stick at some for quite a while so how did yours progress from from this point No, well, I mean, the, the first thing was the organization dissatisfaction yep. with the organization. So I'm out of the organization. The next thing is Hubbard himself, that within oh, six or seven weeks of leaving, I've got all this material about Hubbard that has come to me um, by John Hansen from New Zealand, the great John Hansen. He was lovely. I've got all this stuff from Michael Flynn, and I'm never going to bloody read it. Here. And, you know, I've got the Michael Lynn Shannon documents. The, you know, people keep saying it's Jerry Armstrong. I didn't ever have a single document from Jerry Armstrong. Thank you. Let's just make that clear. He was a good friend and I occasionally talked to him, but in I didn't interview him for Blue Sky. Omar Garrison, the biographer, wouldn't believe me. He said he gave you the documents, didn't he? It's like you couldn't have known these things otherwise. It's like, no, it's out there. You, you can find it. Shannon had collected all these documents. I read them. Hubbard was a liar. No, no two ways about it. He was a liar. I then finish, you know, have my attest my OT5 in the independence, my advanced ability level five. And my attestation is basically realizing I've never had a body thetan. And um, so that was the end of my auditing. Uh, well, it wasn't. I had a, then had a PTS, a potential trouble source run now, because I asked for one. I know the case supervisor is not meant to give you what you asked for, but I said, nine years, I've never had one. Come on, there must be something. And I, it's just one of those things. I sat down and said, uh, so, you know, who are you, who are you connected to that's oppressive, or whatever the question is. And I said, Elron uh, Hubbard. And I hadn't thought about it before it popped out of my mouth. And Paul Morag Belmain, the same Morag Belmain, sat there kind of going, okay, uh, is there anyone else? You know, I said, look, we could sit here all day, but it's going to be him. It's going to be him. And it read, and it was the only thing that read. We listed other things. It was the only thing that read. So this poor woman, you know, this poor, totally devoted Scientologist, flag-trained, OT5 auditor, had to say, I'd like to indicate that you were PTS to L. Ron Hubbard. It took me about a year to realize that poetically this was exactly correct, that Scientology is being under the suppressive influence of Ron Hubbard. And, you know, thinking you're, you're getting somewhere where you're actually just treading water. You don't have any more abilities. You can't communicate any better. You can't solve problems any better. You can't make money any better. You still want to make other people wrong. You know, you've, you don't have any supernatural powers and you don't have perfect intelligence, full memory uh, through not just birth, but the prenatal period. It's all nonsense. You still can, like Ron Hubbard, have asthma and be short-sighted and have ulcers and have terror stomach, which was his main preoccupation in the 50s. 
it, it doesn't work. It, it isn't that. And so I drifted away from the tech. I think, you, you know, you lose the heavy ethics, you lose the, the policy, the interminable policy, um, the, the oft contradictory policy. If somebody asks for their money back, give it to them. If somebody asks for their money back, never give it to them. You know, they're a, you know well, there's policy letter for each. Um, if Double Alan Hubbard contradicts... All throughout. All throughout. Yeah. And, and Hubbard saying everything I've said is true because it's a more recent issue. It doesn't supersede the earlier issue. It's all true. So when I say completely contradictory things like some idiot said that you should not call floating needles if they're not between two and 3.5. Well, the idiot was Alron Hubbard and it's the next bulletin in the pack, you know, and that's double bind and it's a way of getting compliance, getting people to be fervent and, you know, infatuated. So they can't see reason anymore. So they can't smell Hubbard's breath anymore. Their, you know, senses have tuned out and go, I'm in the presence of God, you know? So it's, you know, it's a very different place to be. I, it sort of segued out for me because I just became really interested in history. I mean, I started writing Blue Sky almost immediately, spent six years on it. And at first, the story I wanted to write was the story of Captain Bill, because it was so incredible. I, I at this time, didn't know about the cross-dressing, but this, this, you know, the Markavians and all of that. And uh, Collins wanted to publish the book, an editor there who for three months fought for me to get it, because he told me, well, you're obviously, your head's still stuck in it. And that makes it a fascinating read. <laughs> Thanks so much, you know. Um, but he was right. Um, and there was partly the history, partly that my friends were being attacked now. You know, that... Because um, this is now, the repercussions from the church are, are, are heavy. This is, a, this is a time period when the control that was being exerted by the church on its membership was iron glove. I mean, they were really bringing out the baseball bats. And it was, it was a rough time period, as we said at the very beginning of this episode where people were walking out wholesale and Scientology was going, oh my God, and trying to retain them through the only way they know how to retain people. And that's not being nice and fluffy. It's it, it kind of moved, it kind of moved from being hippie liberal, which is what mm -hmm. it was when I got involved in 74 through to punk Nazi, you know? <laughs> yeah. Good way of putting it. Self-destructive, you know? That's right. And that was and that was from the top down. That was where that was coming from. Because you had these CMO messengers running the day-to-day -day operations of the church at this point. And these are all these are all kids who had grown up on the boat with Hubbard. That literally oh, oh, under oh, him. Miscavige joined later, yeah. Right, that's right. But even he was holding watches and even after they had moved to the base, they still were this CMO Commodore's messenger org. And they were all they were mostly young. The young Turks types, you know, and they were taken over. Yeah, only unlike the young Turks, they weren't capable of creating a new country, right. as Latvik and, and the young Turks did. Right. Um, and they were, you know, also anti-religious. The, the young Turks. We mustn't bring that. Well, into it's it. it's probably one of the most. It, it's amazing it survived. Just just from a thousand foot view, it's amazing that that Scientology actually did survive this time period. Probably a you know a concatenation of 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 events and particularly 
particular people having particular insight at particular places like like you know brennan larry larry slash denise brennan coming up with the corporate sort out structure that actually did work you know things like that david miscavige ruthlessly running you know author services bringing in enough money you know regardless forming up the ias which started in 84 if i believe if i have my memory right that was not hubbard's brainchild but it was a very good idea in terms of pulling in bucket loads of cash. So there were moves that were made that were very, very important moves, but I don't know that I've ever seen a better example of Dunning-Kruger, right, than the CMO. I mean, these guys were ignorant of everything that they should have known something about, and they were absolutely positive that they knew everything they ever needed to know about anything and were smarter than anybody else in the room. Just somewhere in the winter of 83-84, there was a knock on my door and there was a young man there called Gulliver Smithers. Um, and I hope these many years later, he doesn't mind me mentioning his name. And he had been sent by his stepdad, Fred Smithers, to see me because they'd talked and, and Fred had said, look, you know, you need to get out today. Here's an address, go to this address. And he stood in the doorway, realizing that he was looking at John Atak. And there was that look of dread that I have so often experienced from these poor people before I give them a cup of tea and settle them down. And I interviewed him and the interview was published, which is why I'm willing to mention the poor poor man's name. Um, He was 14 years old. Um, He had with him his SEAL uniform. I still have his SEAL cap. I treasure it. And he was the second in command UK. The whole of the UK operation, he was second in command. And when I sort of said, look, but you're only 14, he said, I'm only 14. Many of the people here are just kids, many of the people. So there were 12 year olds. And he told me about uh, situations where ethics folders would be open, the sexual alliances that people had, dalliances that people had been through would then they'd have some 13 year old telling them about their sex lives and what they could and couldn't do. So, I mean, my sense is that Hubbard was very much behind all of this, that he, while suffering bouts of dementia in 83, I would think, he was coming out with these things. Now, I'll I'll give you a a little insight into Aaron Hubbard's mind, which which maybe hasn't got out there. When I talked with Robert Vaughan Young, who was somebody I, I regarded as a good friend, I, you know, I have tremendous admiration for, for Vaughan and for his wife, Stacy. Uh, and who were they exactly in the Scientology world? Stacy was um, a senior executive working for David Miscavige. Um, she, for example, wrote the dead agent pack on Bent Corridon's, so the, you know, the pack dismissing what Ben Corridan had written in Aaron Hubbard, Messiah or Madman. So she would be given jobs that Miscavige wanted doing. Um, it, she was in charge of the project to find the remnants of the two submarines off Cape Lookout in Oregon that uh, Ron had sunk, according to Gordon J. Melton. Um, but yeah, <laughs> what we to say about that? Vaughan, and I think they'd been together for 20 years, uh, by this time, Vaughan 
she was also a saxophonist and sculptor, but those were things that I'm afraid had to be put aside so she could serve the greater cause of Elwyn Hubbard. Um, Vaughan was an ex-Marine um, who had um, used the GI Bill to go to university and was um, doing a master's in philosophy of mind, um, which is a weird subject, which I didn't know anything about. Uh, Claude didn't know you could get a degree in that. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah, well, it would have gone to a PhD level. Um, I, 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 I'm not sure what his degree had been in, thinking about it, but but he was he was working on philosophy of mind, uh, which is what Claude Daniel Dennett is a philosopher of mind. Um, they're kind of one step removed from psychologists that working with theoretical things. So good luck to them, beyond me, frankly. Um, he had been the um, head of public relations in the US. Vaughan announced Hubbard's death, uh, but one of the, he also wrote the Rocky News, Rocky Mountain News interview with Aaron Hubbard. That, that wasn't written by Ron Hubbard. <laughs> Really, you don't book. say. <laughs> this was this was proof of life for Hubbard, right? Because there was a suit from his kid or from yeah. some people that Elwin Hubbard was. They were saying he was dead, and so there was this interview published and a letter supposedly put out by Hubbard that that proved he was. Alive. By this by this time, Hubbard wouldn't answer any questions. He couldn't be bothered. You know, he's too busy getting drunk with Pat Broker. Right, and. So Paul Vaughan finds himself in the situation that he's got to make up the answers to all of these questions. So it's, what's your favorite movie? Slaughterhouse-Five. Where did that come from? Um, right, okay, so this what, is who these guys are. Yeah, the, well, there's one other, what's your favorite, oh. what's your favorite work of fiction? And the answer is, well, you've asked me about fiction, I'm gonna tell you about nonfiction. The reason for this is that Vaughan had found a reference in the lecture to a non-fiction book, which was Ron Hubbard's favorite book. And I make much of this because everybody who's been in Scientology should read this book. They should certainly read the introduction. The book, book is called 12 Against the Gods, written by William Belitho. I've seen it. I've actually read that book. There you go. See, yeah. you, you've taken my advice before I'd even given it. <laughs> For once, I finally, finally was ahead of the curve on something. <laughs> but, so um, I can't even remember why I'm talking about Vaughn. <laughs> because you said that um, you had been talking to, Ra to Vaughn and Stacy um, about Hubbard and Hubbard and something that uh, Vaughn had communicated oh, it, to it about Elrond Hubbard. He was the, he not only had to write this interview, he was also the editor for Mission Earth. Oh, okay. All ten, all 10 volumes. And he said, you know, it was just, oh, no. <laughs> 10 books and he said this one example that I remember you know and this exemplifies Hubbard's state of mind by this time this is you know 82 83 and I think he's kind of wandering off a little bit he in this novel in these novels one of the characters I mean he talks about um, degraded novels is it in keeping Scientology working that you couldn't have a more degraded novel than, than these things they're disgusting um yeah, they're, they're quite bad. They really are. Well, the, the, the genetically modified ring of six boys with their bottom joined together, the yeah. Siamese twins. I, I mean, it's... Outwards, it's just disgusting. Yeah. It makes yeah. William Burroughs look like, you know, kiddie, kiddie material, you know, yeah. comic material, whatever. Um, but 
one of the characters that he had to lose in redrafting was an American, a Native American called Tight Pussy. What? Really? This is the guy running Scientology. <laughs> wow. So the idea of putting the kids uh, in charge of the show. Yeah, well, like we mentioned, Hubbard was a bit of a racist, wasn't he? He, he was absolutely a racist. He was also a sexist. So, you know, it works always, that one. That's right. That's um, right. The idea of taking a bunch of 13-year-olds and putting them in charge and seeing what happened would absolutely fit with that state of mind. You know? Yeah, true. True that. Yeah, Hubbard, Hubbard, great guy. So, okay. So how did the... Uh... Let's, let's let's do this bridge now. How did these how did you go from that to helping out with the legal cases? Because you your you know, your reaction, I guess, um, it's kind of like mine in that you come out and you're like, I got to tell people I got to do something. I got to uh, something. Something has to happen. Something has to change. A lot of people don't do that. They come out and they're all like, you know, in their own head about it. And it's fine. I get it. You know, I'm not saying everybody has to be a crusader. I'm just saying that there's a. There, there's different reactions coming out, and we're we're the kind of people who go, nah, I need to, I need to do more than just go recover from this situation. What prompted you, and and where did you go with that? The first thing is that people who who've really been immersed will come out with complex post-traumatic stress disorder, yep. and the worst thing for them is to involve themselves in any kind of, you know, and we see this. We see people who are just angry. And after they've been angry at David Miscavige, usually, because they very often are still infatuated with Ron Hubbard, they will then be angry with you and me. Yes. And we will become the enemy. And yes. there's had rather too much of that, thank you very much, over the years. Um, I've also had some apologies from people years later, a number of people who said, I'm really sorry I did those things to attack you. Uh, which is, I haven't quite is gotten that, to that part myself yet, but maybe that'll happen at some point. <laughs> you know, it, can take, it can take years, you know. You know uh, and, of course. Kind of, of course. higher level that you get to eventually. <laughs> but no, I, I have. A few people have apologized for the harassment and intimidation, which they gave me as independents, not as right. members of, of the mother cult. Right. Um, what they... You know, I think they're dependent, personally. I think independent's the wrong word. I'm not sure that I... I was certainly one of the first people to use the word. You're laughing now. I am totally laughing because I'm going to steal the shit out of that. That <laughs> is awesome. They're not independent Scientologists. They're dependent Scientologists. Ah! Mm. Uh, independent uh, Scientology. You're no longer a Scientologist, I'm afraid. It's that right. simple, you know. Exactly. But I... I it, you know, the first thing that happened was the media thing. In March 84, the Daily Mail did a story on Scientology and a journalist came to see me and it was a life-changing experience. Um, he'd already got the story. It was too late. I was trying to protect my friends. So I was not looking to expose Scientology to the public in any way. I was still going, well, look, I don't really believe in this, but my friends do. And so I was trying to limit what he was saying. And he was the guy who said to me, and I cite him often in my understanding of the media, he stopped me and he said, John, you don't understand. I want a victim and a picture. 
And um, you know, I think, okay, I'm going to say it publicly. That's the problem I have with Mayor Remini. Oh, okay. Victim picture, victim picture. All of that needs to be exposed. But to have the chance to tell millions of people, this is how people are scammed into this. This is, you know, it's easy. I can explain the steps. I understand it. This is why they stay. This is how they leave. And this is how they recover. The chance to say that to millions of people was lost because victim picture, victim picture. And of course the abuse has to be reported and it's proper that it should be. But if you can also report the cure for the illness, then that should be reported too. And so, you know, that did aggrieve me that, that my attempts to do something with Leia Remini, I had two sweet, polite, handwritten letters from her and that was it. You know, right. it right. was never even the suggestion that I should be interviewed where I am the historian of the subject. Is there somebody I'm, is there somebody I don't know about who's the historian of this subject? Because of course, we've now got Chris Owen, Tony Ortega, the work you've done. Um, but this is a, you know, I, I did this thing. I pulled it together and made a history which had never been done before. Wallace had done two years of it. Yeah, um, for sure. And I, I, and I feel for what you're saying right now. I really do. It could have helped I, people. And that's, that's my concern. That's why I'm still here. I'm actually at a point where I could retire from this work and probably should, you know. Um, I'm very near the age of retirement in the UK, which is now 66. I'll be 65 this year. I am reopening my studio so I can paint again. But I still have a concern that I've seen people who were trapped. I had a contact quite recently from a guy who grew up in it, second generation, left decades ago and hasn't been able to find anybody to talk to who can help him. Years of trying, years of trying, and he can't find anybody who can help him. Now, we, I found him somebody who can help him. And, you know, I'm talking with him myself, but it makes me furious to realize that somebody has suffered for decades when it would have taken me, what, two afternoons to get them through the material they needed to know, to know, firstly, it's not your fault, the goodwill hunting statement, it's not your fault. It's not because you're stupid. It's not because you deserved it. You were in the very much the wrong place at the wrong time and it happened to you. And right. you don't need to feel ashamed. You can have a life. And, you know, having had that experience now, certainly tens of times, perhaps hundreds of times with people and going, you know, people don't need to suffer this way. It, this doesn't need to keep on going. And then the larger problem, which, as you know, has been my fascination for the last five years, which is how do you get prevention out into the society so that the next generation, you know, and you excuse me, paraphrasing the Hubbard statement, don't have to have the experiences that we now have, you know, exactly. instead of 10 years or, or a lifetime, I I've, have friends who really have, you know, gone into their 60s having been involved in Scientology 30, 40 years ago. And they're still going, well, I'll never actually recover. You know, It'll, you know, and they're the people like Paulette Cooper and me who basically say, well, when you've been harassed enough, 
it doesn't actually ever go away, you know, but that's a different matter altogether. And I'm absolutely fine. And I'm pretty sure Paulette is too. Let me put this out there also, just to, just on the Leah thing, because I feel compelled to say this since I have knowledge and I only have so much knowledge I can share because, you know, I try to keep my behind the scenes, you know, things behind the scenes. But one thing I do want to say in defense of Leah on that thing with the show is that the production of the three seasons of Scientology in the Aftermath was not a matter of Leah having dictatorial control of what was and wasn't going up on the TV screen. She had to fight for almost everything they got. And I don't really want to get into more details than that, except that I will say that it's it, there. I have had other people express to me privately various, you know, attitudes and disagreements about the show, what it should and shouldn't have covered. Personally, I thought that they had an opportunity to take on the RPF. There could have been an entire show about that, even two, given the the, the length and breadth of that program and the and the depths of, of awfulness that it entails. Um, so I just wanted to kind of throw that out there since I since I know that, that that is that it wasn't just up to Leah what that production was going to look like. And that and and in fact, if anything, my statement should reinforce what you just said about victim picture, because that is the approach of the media to almost any of these subjects. And if you go through A&E's channels or shows and you look at the other cult productions they put on, or the basically any of the A&E shows pretty much, it's victim picture. You know, and so there's a decision point on the part of Leah and Mike of, okay, can we use this this sort of thing to our advantage to get some stories out there, or you know, what do we do with this, or do we not say anything, or or how, you know, what what do we do? And 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 I know that there was, um, well, like I said, without betraying confidences, there was a lot of frustration behind the scenes about some aspects of that of that show, and despite that, they got an Emmy. And they got the, the 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 production that they got. So I know you're not hitting the show. I'm not trying to put you on the spot or or you know make a fight. I just wanted to put that out there in the public uh, because because it's not you know you're not the only one who said something like that. I, and I think the Emmys deserved. I, I think the shows were tremendously valuable. You you'll see that my frustration comes from 36 years of trying to help the victims of this group. And seeing this opportunity lost. Yes. And yes. that, you know, maybe the gripe is too much, but and maybe my ego is too big. But I spent years making the history of this movement available to the world. And um, I suffered hugely for that. I was harassed for 16 years for doing that. I was sued into the ground, I lost a five-bedroom house. Um, you know, so maybe there's some resentment on my part that this is a problem that could have been solved and no other documentary company has come along either over the years um, to, to do anything about it. And, and maybe that says something more about our society than it does about what they did. The point was I that I so. tried so. to engage with Mike and Leia and they did not engage with me at all. And I and I have nothing to say in their defense about that because, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, that was not cool. You are absolutely a pillar upon which the anti-Scientology movement depends. There's no question about that. 
When I talk about standing on the shoulders of giants in the work that I have done, I'm referring to you and others, right, uh, in the past who have been the OG people who took the shellackings, lost their houses, lost their careers, lost lots and lots of things, right, literally did have their lives ruined, you know, and that's, and and I acknowledge that debt uh, with gratitude often, you know, and I, and so I want to say that out, out loud too. Thank you. It, and it's it's where we take it you know again you know i do have enough ego to want people to be grateful to me but i also have have a sense of you know horror of any kind of adulation so i have to <laughs> right. i totally but get it the, the the thing is that that it's still out there to be said it's still out there to be done and that you know i see an opportunity you know, again, I had a guy, I think I mentioned before, he's 20 years housebound. He spent an afternoon with me, went and got a job. And that, that makes me furious. Yes. So that a TV show, you know, when in the last episode of the first season, Steve Hassan is on there. And he's asked about, he, he makes the statement, of course, Scientology is hypnotic. And I think it's Mike Rinder who, who goes, really? And you're going, how far have we come in the understanding of what this thing actually is? That, that it's, it's guided imagination. Let's take the nasty H word out of it. It's guided imagination. Imagine that you had a reactive mind and an analytical mind. Imagine that your reactive mind was full of moments of unconsciousness where you were given instructions that you're not aware of. Ooh, there's a beast inside you. Imagine you were being controlled by little beings from outer space. Imagine... Oh, and eventually you have people who are imagining that Elrond Hubbard doesn't have bad breath. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Nailed it. Nailed it. You know, yeah. something else that this brought to mind, I think that's important to comment on, is the state of psychology in regards to this, okay? And it's really bad. I've, I've defended psychiatry, psychology, because of my previous extremist stance that psychiatry mm-hmm. should be a globally annihilated and destroyed and, you know, done away with and all this other bullshit that Scientology puts out. Um, You know, but at the same time, it's a difficult field to defend because there have been so many abuses in that field over its past. And we are really only coming into what I could call a civilized state of mental health in the last, what, maybe 30, 40, 50 years, you know, where we're not just brutalizing people in the name of helping them. And uh, and I refer there to over-medication. I refer to ECT, you know, trans-over-the-leucotomies, lobotomies, things like this. This is just barbaric stuff. So it's right out of bedlam. So so I know about all that. And I go, okay, I'm going to still give them the benefit of the doubt that these are well-intentioned people who are trying to do something positive in moving the ball down the road of mental health. But let's face it, we don't even have a good de- working definition of mental illness yet. Not that, not that, not that, not that's cross-disciplinary, you know. We, I went to a, um, two weeks ago, I went to a, a seminar or a workshop, uh, an all-day one for mental health professionals and spoke as a survivor uh, on human trafficking and, and destructive cults. And I look at their models and I got their handouts and I saw where these, where these folks were at. And they are, they're baby, baby, babies on this stuff. They don't, you know, I, and it's weird to me to feel like I know more than a mental health professional about something, but in this particular case, you know, is what it is. So 
So I so we're it's 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 frustrating, you know, to to see the state of of where things are at professionally and how yeah. much more there is to go, you know. Yeah, I mean, with the Open Minds Foundation, we, we, we had a variety of projects, um, one of which was in Holland, where a, a doctor there had come out of a Roman Catholic um, group, a terrible authoritarian group, and I'm sad to say that the Catholic Church houses a number of them, the Legionnaires of Christ, Opus Dei, should be high on the list there. Um, that there is no reason for those groups to exist. They are destructive. Absolutely. Um, but there you go. But he'd come out of one of these groups and, and said, well, you know, I'm a doctor in general practice. Why didn't I know anything about this? And so one of the projects was to, you know, put out something for doctors, general practitioners, so that when somebody comes in and sits with them and they're giving the, what to you and me are the obvious signs of post-traumatic stress disorder, that, that that is not seen for what it is. If you then move them over to clinical psychology, then what you'll see is that uh, clinical psychologists, counsellors don't know what to do. So they can either use the uh, person-centred method, which is you just sit back and listen and actively repeat what's being said to you and hope the person will arrive somewhere, which in some conditions seems to work. You can try what analysis of some kind, you know, what, what were you thinking when you were one and a half years old about <laughs> your mother? Right. Hey, you dirty little boy. Um, Tell me about but, your childhood. Yeah, I mean, if there is, there's uh, Dan Shaw is, is good. I'm certainly, he's the only psychoanalyst that, that I would go anywhere near. And he comes out of the forensic school, which, which of course was totally denounced by Freud. Um, because friends, he used the word love, and we're not allowed to do that if we're going to be psychoanalytic. You know that you know that Freud never had a single psychoanalytic session. That was how much trust he placed in his method. Other that people makes sense to me. Yes, yep. he didn't need it. <laughs> I've already got one. Yeah. Um, but so, or they'll get cognitive behavioral therapy to change their thinking patterns, or they'll get you know, dissection of childhood or what have you without the simple understanding that they have been abused that an abusive relationship a coercive controlling relationship has been created and there are fairly straightforward ways of helping people to get over that but they're not found in our health systems anywhere in the world because most of our health systems oh dear i'm going to say it are afflicted by their cultic beliefs. That if, if you know, look at the history of psychology, we've already ridiculed Freud, we could put Jung in there and Adler, we could put quite a lot of people in, in there. They just believed silly things. They're crazy things. Then you get John Watson and the creation of behaviorism. So you can't know anything about the mind and that dominates psychology in the US from the mid twenties right to 1970 thereabouts. You can't know anything about the mind. So there's, it's a black box. You can see what goes in, what comes out. So let's put some rats in a maze and make a Skinner box for a baby. And Exactly, or our kids in a box, yeah. I mean, Theo yeah. Skinner was a monster. Well, it, he's, it's interesting actually, Skinner's daughter has written about that and said, look, it, it was just like a, a kind of warm space. It wasn't like I was kept in a cage 
Because that's what it looks like. It looks like she was in a cage. I mean, if I'm making over harsh judgments, okay, but goddamn, man, that kid was in a box. Yeah, I'm. I'm not at all keen on uh, on Skinner's work. (laughs) I, I, I I use much larger boxes for my children. Um, but but it it continues that whatever people believe now is the truth but the past was kind of medieval superstition i I, you know the mindfulness cult oh come on you know this is just despicable john kabat-zinn claiming that he's created a new lineage of buddhism he's never studied buddhism he's never received a transmission in buddhism he has no right to create a lineage it's not like in Christianity, you, you can say, right, I have had a revelation, I am now a minister, and that seems to be kind of accepted. The comparison with Buddhism would be more to say, I have a degree in theology, I have a, a master's degree in theology, and I have a doctorate of divinity. That's what's expected of you to start a lineage, to become something. And that's not what John Kabat-Zinn's done. And on the one hand, he's saying, um, if all you have to do is sit and meditate or suck a raisin or what have you, become body aware. And this will breed compassion in you. And you go, yeah, worked very well with soldier Zen in the 1920s and 30s, didn't it? And then you find that Kabat-Zinn is teaching this compassionate approach to the American military, who are paying out huge amounts of money to make compassionate murderers. I mean, where are we anymore? So cults and cultic thinking, latching on to some process, you know, the fanaticism and fervor that's the thing that gets me that when people can't talk about something without spitting and getting enraged something wrong has happened we have tapped into the dark part of human nature we need to be able to you know if i talk to a holocaust denier and my father was in the force that liberated bergen belsen so i have no doubt that the film of bergen belsen is correct if I talk to a Holocaust denier, it's something that's personally offensive to me. I accept that. But it, I find it despicably offensive. All of those Romanese, Blacks, Communists, Jews, who were systematically exterminated. I'm perfectly happy with the evidence. I've been through plenty of it. To, you know, Because it, it's something that fascinated me as a young man and something I came back to when I started talking with Holocaust deniers. But the point is, when the fervor sets in, when people want to hit each other over it, you know, but people, we are willing to believe that the earth is round. What a stupid idea. It's obviously flat. You know, we are willing to believe that people landed on the moon. Of course they didn't. It was all a studio in Texas, but we are, the point is that that parts of our beliefs, we now have dark matter, dark energy, yeah. Mm-hmm. We used to have phlogiston. We used to have <laughs> this idea of this word that when you burn something, this stuff called phlogiston came off it. And then Lavoisier or Priestley or somebody discovered oxygen. And things change. Dark energy, dark matter, super strings. You are walking into this bizarre world when you start trying to think about any of this stuff. 85% of the universe is missing. And it wasn't just a big bang. The big bang is one in a sequence and there are parallel universes. It's all complete madness. 
and it's the highest level of science in the human race. So this presumption of, you know, one group knowing something and another not. I was surprised when I have had some little dialogue with people in the de-radicalization world. And I tried to do more and I offered to do more and I didn't charge any money. It shocked me. I went to two conferences where the work that I would do or did do 25 years and more ago was sitting down with, with a, a current fanatical person and within a single day, because I only ever had a single day, getting them to change their mind, to reconsider their information and reevaluate it, put it together, which would quite obviously be quite useful in de-radicalizing. You know, a friend of mine, which well, become a friend of mine, has just um, um, delivered her master's thesis saying, um, you know, maybe you guys in counterterrorism could learn something from the few people who've gone out there and actively, I, I would say hostage negotiators of the other crowd of people to talk to. About big time, big time. They have very good advice on talking to people. I've read some, um, some stuff from them. Yeah, Chris Foster's work, the head of the FBI team is, you know, is pretty much what you do as an exit counselor, except for the bit where you have to disagree to uh, get authority. You have to yeah, do exactly. Chris, Chris but, Voss, is that who you're talking yeah. about? Yeah, great, very smart man, very worth yeah. looking into. Yeah, um, but there's somehow clinical psychology is, has just got itself tied up. We now have schema therapy. We've got eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Oh, come off it, you know? <laughs> it, it used to be called neuro-linguistic programming and it didn't work then either. The fact that you can get somebody to feel better doesn't mean that they've become better doesn't mean and what they present to you and what they present to their family and the people around them might be quite different you might learn to jump through the hoops in your little laboratory but when they get home you know life is not easy so i you know yet there is some great work there's some great work on on trauma reduction um i've got what um Janoff Bullman, Shattered Assumptions, fantastic book written in the 90s, which I found very useful in dealing with anybody who's traumatized and which doesn't seem to say the things that I would hear from a standard clinical psychologist. The courses are largely redundant. My 17 year old is finishing a psychology course at the moment and he's going, but this is, dad, this is stuff that's been gone for 20 years because he's, you know, lives with me. So he knows the kind of stuff that's being written and and what's happening now even his biology doesn't text doesn't speak about epigenetics and you're going that was the 70s you know catch up so i think we've got a lot of people coming out of university who are being trained in you know as hubbard said the the names and dates of freud's papers he said that in the 60s and they really are still doing something like that, that you've got to understand oral retentive and anal sadistic and anal retentive and genital things as if as if this made any sense or had any scientific research behind it it never did so culty and until we get to be a bit more scientific then you move into the social the social psychology field and you find out that clinical psychologists don't know anything about social psychology that's right and at the moment all of the great experiments upon which social psychology is based 
are being torn to shreds. The um, Robbers Cave experiment, it's gone. It was a setup. You know, we can learn something from it. Milgram, Milgram is under massive attack again. Um, I'm still with him. You know, I read through the 17 experiments. I think it's 17 sets. And he seems pretty thorough, but there, there is some suggestion of cheating in his work. Of course, Zimbardo has been attacked. And again, I've looked at the, you know, what, what's not, there's a book in French and people are going, there's this book in French and they don't quote from it. They don't translate it. And, you know, I, I don't have the time to read a book in French at the moment. But from it, we get this little tape where somebody said, uh, look, here's one of the guards being taught how to act in the prison experiment. Well, yeah, a little bit, just a little bit though. It doesn't to me change anything. And the guy who was the first to stop the experiment set, you know, he'd been a arrested before and actually in prison on anti-war protests, but he cracked in two days and he 30 years later says, no, I just wanted to leave. Well, the point is his contract said he could leave at any point. So he didn't need to play out, but there is a, uh, Gina Perry down in Australia is doing stuff and we do need to question all these things and we can't repeat any of these experiments because they're all unethical. That's right. Oh dear. So we, we seem to be coming, postmodernism has now come to, to the world of the social sciences so that it's everybody's opinions as good as everybody else's, um, which I'm not quite willing to accept yet. I still think Einstein knew more about gravity than I ever will. Exactly. In my opinion, therefore, not as valid as his. But so, yeah. Yeah. Something's yeah. happening. Hopefully, something positive will come of it all. But well, it's just you know, it's just the it's just our frustration, I think, at the slowness, the the pondering slowness of of progress. You know, um, and the interference with progress. The point well, where yeah. there are, yeah. you know, unfortunately, counselling will attract more narcissists than any other profession. Because you can be adulated, you can get the transference effect, which is one of the things that I think Freud was basically right about, one of the few things he was uh, basically right about. And, you know, I, the, I deal with counsellors, I know I have a number of friends, close friends who are counsellors, who are able to help former members and can do something in the first 10 minutes to make them feel better. But they are extraordinarily rare. Whereas there are, I'm told there are 4,000 practitioners of eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing in Holland alone. And they all have to, re they all have to pay for renewal of their licenses every year. That woman Shapiro has done really well out of this. Yes, yes. With well, no real are... scientific studies, you know. Well, fads are a beautiful thing, you know, and they uh, they just hit every single profession one way or another. And this is the foible of of humans doing science. This is the this is the problem with us is we're humans and we got to we have all of our issues and we're sitting here trying to figure out and sort out how to get through our issues. And at the end of the day, wonder whether our own biases aren't the things that are uh, tripping us up the entire time and we can't even and and of course with a bias you know it's damn near impossible to see it when it's yours so it, there's that whole factor you know there's yeah, there's which is of, why, why we need to be collaborative and you know the amount nice. of psychologists who've cheated in their work Hans Isink the IQ guy we know he cheated Cyril 
Burt, who actually brought in testing for 11 year olds here, he claimed to have found, I think, 47 or something pairs of identical twins separated at birth. Nobody has ever found that many identical twins separated at birth. Um, it was made up. So we've we've got fraud. We've got it's, it's like the policeman who, who knows the guy's guilty, so he plants the evidence. We've got lots of people who are supposedly scientists doing that. They include Galileo and Newton, both of whom cheated massively. Really? Uh, yep. It said if you look at the Principia Mathematica by by Newton, the first, second, and third editions, the results tables at the end are different, and they're improved in each edition with no new work. Interesting. It is said that 50% of Galileo's experiments are fake. Uh, if you do drop a big bag of feathers and a piece of lead that weigh the same from the top of a tower, the air resistance means that the feathers will land after because they've got a bigger surface area. Mm -hmm. And so on and so on and so on. And so on but, and so on and so on. Yes, the, I get the, it. The point is really bringing about a, a more honest approach and, and taking the people out of our society who are actually actively messing with this. The, the, you know, the cheats and frauds and liars and narcissists who don't really care about the rest of us and creating a society where people who do care have the power. You know, and I don't think... You know, at the moment, I, we are at a pretty crucial point in our history because um, things might heat up a bit and uh, Trump Towers may be underwater in 20 years' time, you know. Exactly. We don't but know Hampton where things are going. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Well, we're going we're gonna to move toward wrapping up at this point because we've had a wonderful conversation here. And, I think we managed uh, to get about six months. Yeah, early. exactly. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, I knew it was going to be bad. I didn't know it was going to be that bad. But you know what? It's fine. Because uh, I learned things here I definitely have never known. Um, you gave some very interesting insights into some things. And I think we've covered territory that, of course, as you and I are wont to do, uh, we needed to go there, you know, in our yeah. windy way. So I'm, so you know, I, I'm more than happy with our episode here. So, uh, yeah, thank you. Good. Um, I'd just like to apologize <laughs> to Neil Gaiman, Paulette, my good friend Paulette, and Leah Remini and Mike Rinder before we go any further. <laughs> Not a problem. And honestly, I think some of those folks owe you an apology too. But, um, but we're not going to. You know, this isn't about one-upmanship. That's not what my show's about. That's not what I'm trying to push here. You know, we've all got our views. We've all got our positions and situations, and we've all had the lives that we've had. And, you know, circumstances are often the thing that get a get the best of us. You know, we like to we like to go for we like to think with fundamental attribution error and blame individuals and their motives and reasonings for things when in fact it's usually circumstantial. And just beyond our, you know, our sight. So we, so we only target the people, you know. Yeah, it, it's it's situational, you yeah. know. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'd never go 100% situationist. I think Zimbardo, maybe, from reading the Lucifer Effect, and he's a man I admire and respect tremendously. Um, I have his email address too, um, mm. <laughs> and he has been known occasionally. <laughs> You know, and I do think that probably about 95% of what happens in the world is situation, but there is then our response to it. And um, 
the, the frustration for me is there are very simple things that we could do. There is very simple information that we could spread that would change the world for the next generation. And it drives me, you know, I walked away before because nobody was helping me. Nobody was doing anything, you know, and because people have lives, they're busy and they realize if you get involved with causes, they can eat you up. And they looked at me and they went, it ate you up. You know? So I went away for 17 years and studied. You know, I read about psychology. I read about terrorism. I read about gangs. I realized that groups are groups. Human groups are human groups. And I felt that there are certain dynamics within them that you have human predators and you have the methods that they use, things like love bombing, things that, that you and I know well about, ways of controlling other people, bringing about compliance, and there are many of them. But fundamentally, they're quite simple and we could teach them to the next generation. And uh, that's why everybody should immediately subscribe to my YouTube channel. That's right. <laughs> and put a huge fortune into my Patreon so that I can afford to pay Spike to maintain the channel. Uh, but, it, you know, the material's there. And, and I think that, that we, we have a there's, a... there's a collectivity. What's, you know, what is important about our biases is that we become a network and that rather than thinking there are, you know, somebody ought to do something about that, finding out what small thing we can do about it. I had a friend... A few years ago, she she started buying copies of. Um, am I allowed to advertise on your show? Sure, product placement. There we go. <laughs> she started putting copies of this tiny little book, which is meant for people who've never been involved in Scientology. Piece of blue sky was for people who've been involved, but she would because it's relatively inexpensive. It's got a nice picture of David Miscavige in it too, and a lovely picture of Ron Hubbard. Oh. Wow. Look at Oh, that, that's definitely see. a... You can see how the, charismatic he was. <laughs> that's the glamour shot right there. Yeah. Um, it, she would buy copies of this and leave them in bus stations, things like that. So I'm very much for this. Go out and buy a thousand copies. <laughs> Excellent. It's about spreading information and, and we can all do that. And it's about... It is also about disagreeing and debating and discussing and, you know, which is the thing that's so enjoyable about talking with you that you don't agree with me, you know. <laughs> so we actually get to think about something between us and then we do agree, you know. Exactly. So for me, that's the, the process of a good life. Discussion, not argument, you know. Beautiful. I And I agree too. I do. Um, okay, so... Shout out John's channel, link below. Okay, so check it out. Hit the subscribe button on his channel if you have not already. It is well worth your time to engage with uh, John's content. It is very, very good stuff. And with that, we will be wrapping up the show for this week. John, again, thank you very much for taking the time. Yep, and I look forward to the following 27 parts. That's right. <laughs> exactly. We are going to do this. It is a labor of love, and it is also just the most fun I'm allowed to have all week. So uh, so with that, folks, leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the comment section below. I am uh, interested in what you have to say, good, bad, or sideways. Just please don't be rude about it. And with that being said, I will wrap up this show. See you guys next week. Bye-bye.